Hello everyone, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads the Books of Dust, Episode 9, La Belle Sauvage, Chapters 23 through 25, featuring a special guest, Holly from the Dust Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Eliana. And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe. Yes, hello Holly, thank you so much for joining us for our final La Belle Sauvage episode. Thank you so much for having me back on. I had a really good time when we did this last time. So this was super exciting for me to be able to come back and join you guys. Yes, we had a really fun time back in December for our Patreon episode. It was on the music from His Dark Materials Series 1 and Series 2, the wonderful adaptation that's been premiering on HBO and BBC. Great production, and it was really fun having you and the double M on with us, Matt, on with us for that time. And now we have you back. This is really exciting. Some fun fact about this book and me, I read this book in 2017 when it came out. That was about a year after I experienced my own 100-year flood down here in South Louisiana. So this, there's a lot of parts of this book that are really traumatic for me. And for a lot of us down here, there was a time before the flood and a time after the flood. But it was pretty intense. Not as intense as what goes on in this book, but I lost like a lot of most of my stuff and my parents' home was pretty destroyed. They had to like do like a full remodel and um, it was a really traumatic experience. So, so this book brings back some fun memories for me. Oh my God. Wow. Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah wow. I- and I mean... I didn't even read it the first time through. I kind of transitioned to audio only with books in the last few years. So my first time reading it was listening to it. And I gotta say, I'm a really big fan of Michael Sheen's performance um, reading this book. And he does The Secret Commonwealth as well. So I think a lot of my notes and things I'm going to add are going to talk about like how he performs things. And it's fun. If y'all haven't listened to it yet, I definitely recommend it. He's fantastic. If you don't know who Michael Sheen is, I know him from Masters of Sex on from Showtime, which is a great show. And he was recently in a adaptation of Good Omens with David Tennant, which is fantastic. And I think we were talking about Twilight before. I believe he's in the Twilight movies. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, he, yeah. He uh, I've seen, I've just seen clips. So I was like, oh, look, there he is. But um, he's a fantastic <laughs> actor and, and really, really great narrator for this series. And I'm a big fan of anything that he'll read now. Yes. I mean, I'm a huge Underworld fan. So right. I love him very much. I love him very Forgot much. Forgot about Underworld. How, <laughs> I really how liked I? him in Good Omen. Yeah. That was a good show. He seems show. adorable. Oh, he is. He's very, like, I think, like, he has the right whimsy for this book. Mm-hmm. I, I've listened to a little bit of it, but I I don't have a great attention span for audiobooks. Same. I get lost. I gotta work on I get, that. Well, I, I just get lost, you know? I'm like, shit. What happened? <laughs> Well, we do have to do our spoiler warning up top before we get into the episode. We will be spoiling from the main trilogy, The Northern Lights or The Golden Compass if you're in the US like us, The Subtle Knife, The Amber Spyglass, as well as talking about some of the novellas from time to time. And we will probably reference the TV series, Series 1 and Series 2 of His Dark Materials. Yes. We will not be discussing... The Secret Commonwealth until afterwards in the discussion. But also something else that we'd like to bring up for this specific episode is we do have a trigger warning 
this episode for sexual assault and sexual violence. So if that is something that you don't wish to hear about, you can either skip the last two chapters of this episode or feel free to just, you know, not listen. We love you and we'll see you again when we come back with some other His Dark Materials stuff. Yeah, and we will also remind you before we speak about it in the episode as well. So if you want to tune in for a bit and then tune out, that's fine as well. This is, of course, our last LaBelle Sauvage episode. Well, I guess for now, you never know. Maybe someday we'll come back and say, oh, I want to talk about that boat book again. Uh, but this is it for now. We will finish up the episode, finish up the book, and I think we're going to be starting the Amber Spyglass next to our knowledge. That's our next goal, our next destination. So a little rewind, then a bit of a fast forward. Yeah, it's going to be, yeah, actually it literally is that, so... I'm excited to get into the <laughs> Amber Spyglass, and hopefully, you know, we are doing it and finish it before our Series 3 starts. That's that's the hope, which has, in fact, started production. There are scripts ready, made. Oh my god, they're real. They're real. I've seen a photo of the, the front of them, right? Uh, Mary Malone's actress, Simone Kirby, posted a photo of her script. <sighs> Amazing. Yeah, so that's a great look ahead, Eliana. And I mean, we will probably what we'll cover the Secret Commonwealth eventually, but that's that's far off in the future. We've got Amber Spyglass and Series Three, hopefully. Yeah, but before we do that, we do have this end of the book, right? Not Series Three, but Chapter Twenty Three of La Belle Sauvage, Ancient. Three. It's actually ancient tree, but I yes, thought no. I thought I can make this really work. It's the worst. <sighs> <sighs> yes, chapter twenty-three, ancient re. Alice and Malcolm are stuck in front of giant iron gates with no way to get through that they can see. Just bushes, water weeds, and you. The tunnel is so sensory overload, there's dark water dripping and trickling, and the river is going through the gates, but also vegetation. It's very abundant. It's very creepy crawly. Just bushes, water weeds, and me. No, it's you, trees. Uh, why don't you? But I, I don't have the quote here, but I encourage you all to reread this first two paragraphs of this chapter because I love the language here about how it talks about the darkness, and the darkness almost has this weight. It's heavy. They describe it almost like as, as being like this positive entity as opposed to the negative space, which makes me think a little bit of how uh, artistic composition works, right? You use the negative space to sort of balance out the images and also, you know, focus on certain areas and, and to delineate things within your composition. But of course, this idea of darkness being this physical thing, right? And not just the absence of light. It's reminiscent of dark matter, right? Which is, of course, one of the big inspirations behind dust, which is a big part of this whole series. Yeah, dark matter feels really present throughout all of this, doesn't it? And especially because they have the creepy crawlies bad right now, because Bonvie's following them. Gerard Bonvie, back from the dead for like the 80th time <laughs> in this book, is following them, and they're kind of worried that he is on the way to get them stuck at this gate, but they don't actually hear him suddenly. They're like, what? Where? Wait a second, where are we? So where they are is a very strange place. The river is flowing against them, therefore it should be beneath them. However, they are also up high, above. They feel like they're very high in the air. It's very nonsensical. Everything is confusing. 
weird. It feels very magical. And Malcolm leans up to kind of survey where they are, and he sees something that knocks him backwards and makes Alice cry out. He points. It was the head of a man, but huge, emerging from the water among the reeds. He must have been a giant. His hair was tangled up with weeds and seemed to be growing through a rusty crown. His skin was greenish, and his long beard trailed over his throat and down into the water. He was looking at them with mild and peaceful interest. As he stood up higher, they saw his left hand was clasping the shaft of, what was it, a spear? No, a trident. As Malcolm saw by looking upwards into the darkness, where three points of reflected light shone dimly, he looked at the giant's face and thought he could see a glimmer of benevolence there. Uh, I love it. it. It's almost described like a storm surge barrier where they are, but like in the sky, mm. but also underground. It's very strange. And I love this description of the giant where they are on these islands. They keep going kind of popping between and where the rushes have taken them. It's almost like little bubble worlds, right? Mm -hmm. Each place that they've been. And it feels like they're slipping in and out of bubble worlds along their journey. It's only perfect that we have a gatekeeper to a secret world here. We've been brought up river sticks a few times throughout the story and some elements of that mythos that are really resonant across ancient Rehir and in Mausoleum and A Quiet Road. The idea of the coin placed in the mouth of a dead person to grant passage to the underworld even feels pretty prominent, especially with bartering with Lyra as the Princess of Albion, as we're about to discover and discuss. It's interesting. It's kind of like a fake out, right? Because at first you have this sort of horrific imagery of the way that the giant's head looks as it's appearing. And you're like, oh, damn, it's another another dead body. And then it's a giant. And he's like literally yeah. the biggest himbo. And he smells like mud. I love <laughs> it. He does. You're right. <laughs> the himbo of the sea. <laughs> well, <laughs> This giant man, the giant himbo, if he'll let them through because they're being chased by a bad guy. But the giant man says he can't. The gates haven't been opened in thousands of years and they're only for use in case of a drought in the world. But Malcolm pleads that it would only be for a couple of seconds. But the man's like, I can't take that chance because of how much water might come through the gates. And Malcolm responds that, well, the flood can't get any worse. And also we have a baby. And Alice interjects that she's Princess Lyra. And Malcolm adds that they're taking her to the King of Albion, her father, Thinking of the Fairy Queen. Bravo, right? You have to give the kids credit on this one. They both were real fast on their feet. And you do get the sense here from this wonderful watcher in the water that he's not very bright to, to the modern things going on with Malcolm and Alice, right? Like, they're a little tricky. They're smart. They have that wit, kind of like you see Lyra have with her trickery in the main series. Uh, and I, I do love that watcher in the water aspect of the giant. Eliana and I have talked endlessly in our other series, A Song of Ice and Fire read through that we are not Tolkien uh, super fans, right? Like we don't know much about the worlds of Lord of the Rings, but I do know that there is a watcher in the water in Moria oh. in Lord of the Rings in Middle Earth. And it's a little different of a story. It's not as, uh, not as himbo-esque, right? The watcher in the water in Moria is more of a creature. A lot of these stories of these gatekeepers are like monsters in the water, but this giant seems so nice, so friendly. And of course, the password to the gate ends up being the Princess of Albion, mm -hmm. right? Albion of old magic and old blood, a literal different world. We'll talk a little bit more about Albion, but it was a landmass that constituted the island known as Great Britain. 
and once it was said to be united in an age of peace during which all of its inhabitants followed the old religion as one people. Speaking of A Song of Ice and Fire, this for me was like if they merged the Titan of Bravos with the Weirwood door um, oh. and have, and then you have three people trying to make their way past, like pass through and they have to whisper the right password to the being to be allowed through. And uh, yeah. I don't know, that's kind of what it reminded me of. The Sphinx. Yeah. Yes. That's even better. But it is very much, you know, dependent, as you were saying, on, like, finding the right words, these magic words. And it's funny that they spin it out of thin air, right? Like, it's not any sort of open sesame. They're just like, I don't know, here, hold the baby. (laughs) (laughs) Hold the babby. (laughs) Yeah, actually, he does say babby. And I was like, what? How is babby babby formed? And I just have like, oh, so the titan, the the, sorry, the the giant is into memes. (laughs) (laughs) he's tuned in that's what he's doing in the other side of the world he's like on the internet but yeah the giant shrugs acknowledging that he's like oh yeah i know albion he says he can't open the gates though because he has instructions from (laughs) father thames himself and you know we talked about albion a bit last time but you know digging into it a bit more and and coming back to it again as we said it's an alternate name for great britain and interestingly, thinking about the word Albion and that name, one Celtic linguist, Xavier Delamare. <gasps> oh. I'm going to let pew, that. Pew, pew, pew. pew, pew. Uh, that one's pew, pew, pew. So a little. <laughs> we can't talk about it too much here, but. That's dusty. That is dusty. You're dusty. I know. Wow. <laughs> and of course, we are here on the water, so a lot of things going on. Anyways, Xavier Delamare, which I, I, I find that significant because it means of the sea, anyways, um, said that the etymology of Albion could have been in reference to like the world above, the visible world, in opposition to the world below, i.e. the underworld. So it's fascinating that this gatekeeping enormous himbo makes reference to Father Thames. Uh, we begin to see that the flood is, of course, still a flood, but suddenly it becomes a river. Right. And rivers, of course, have many meanings, as do floods. A lot of the symbolism behind floods has to do with cleansing, right? But also, of course, consuming, right? It takes all these things, it, it swallows it all up in the water. Whereas rivers are also very much about destiny, right? There's a course to them, there's a destination. But it's, of course, also tied to ideas of the underworld. Chloe, you were talking about the underworld and, and crossing the river sticks and needing that coin and of course we do see that uh, with lyra and will when they're crossing to the underworld and they have to separate from their demons which malcolm has to do here in a bit and rivers are thresholds as malcolm and alice they're exiting the world below that subterranean world where the fairies live back into the world above that visible world and of course malcolm and alice are at a threshold they're at a crossing in their own lives uh it's called puberty and they begin to wrestle with more complex questions about and doubts about the world. And of course, as we've come to see in these past few chapters, Malcolm's burgeoning sexuality, which this is not this is not how I would have found my sexual awakening. But this is the story that we have. Uh, but also, perhaps the flood is a sea, right? Coming back to that Delamare thing, some suggest that Albion may be a word derived from the word Albus, which now I'm like, oh, that's that other thing. Okay, anyways. And that the word Albus, that 
means white might have been inspired then by the white cliffs of Dover in Britain. And it reminds me of the poem Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold, which I actually don't doubt. I'm pretty sure Philip Pullman knows this. It's a very famous poem and he's very into poetry. And the poem, it's, you know, it, a lot of it has to do with like that beach. It's very full of sadness. It talks about the classical references, classical mythology, also in a way threshold, right, of modernity seeming to give way to a world with less faith, where people have less trust in religion. And that's, of course, very central to these books. There's also a call at the end to be true to one another for love, seeing the world briefly as new and full of possibilities, while there are armies that are clashing at night unseen, and those are likely much more metaphorical in the poem. But of course, that's very much what's happening in these last three chapters, very uh, explicitly, right? Very, very literally. They're transitioning <laughs> into a new world, um, the metaphor, right, uh, on the doorsteps of adulthood, but unbeknownst to them. But also kind of known, otherwise they wouldn't have gone on this enormous journey. Um, as the last chapter opens, there are those two secret forces fighting to secure Lyra and her future. And of course, there's that like other big secret war in the main trilogy. <laughs> it's doing a lot to set up those tensions. Mm -hmm. And uh, two secret forces fighting for Lyra's future are one thing, but I think we're about to meet a few more. Right? As we go along in this story in these last few chapters, not even just two. Mm -hmm. There's a whole supernatural world out there. A whole new world. But there's also there's also a force right now that's still trying to bring Lyra down. And Malcolm and Alice both hear the very creepy hyena's laughter. Not great. Uh does not do great for your anxiety, right? Malcolm continues trying to sweet talk the giant and he's like, you know, you're probably not strong enough to open that gate anyway. <laughs> I know you guys have already mentioned the hyena laughing before on a previous podcast, but it really does add to that element of anxiety, horror, and suspense mm -hmm. throughout. And Michael Sheen's performance of this is really great. It's like, ha ha! It's like that. And oh, I, I can't. It's hard. Sorry, listeners, for that awfulness, but it is... The way he does it is both wow. jarring and and creepy. Yeah, so when you're listening to it and it's like a quiet moment and then you hear that and we're like, oh God, it just, it shakes you. <sighs> I think what's like the worst too is imagining that they're on the water, mm -hmm. right? So it echoes no matter what. Mm -hmm. That laugh is going to echo and sound like it's surround sound everywhere on the water and like dissipate very slowly. And that, I, I just remember reading it. I actually read this uh on the way to and from Eliana's home. And so I was on a bus reading it and like, I was so glued in. I got about halfway through the book on the way there or like more than halfway. And the whole time I was at her house, I was just like, I got to go finish this book. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to be talking to you. Cause I was like, so in suspense from that freaking hyena, that goddamn hyena. Yeah. He knows how to write the creepy stuff for sure. And as you said, like the sounds, so you can't really tell where they are and that makes it so much more eerie because you don't know where they're coming from how to defend yourself and also now i want to hear how michael sheen does the hyena because it's not easy you know like as i tried to do it i i looked up how hyenas sound it's not easy <laughs> no and hyenas 
I have a list of hyena facts too, but they have different sounds they make for different reasons. So, and I don't know what all of them mean, but hyenas are kind of misunderstood. um, And they're not like, I mean, they're actually really, really intelligent creatures and they can solve puzzles that they weren't even like trained for. And, and they're better at chimpanzees than at like cooperative problem solving. Mm. They are actually a little bit smarter than chimpanzees, according to some research. And another thing they'll do is if, you know, they're pack animals, but if they find another hyena, if a mother hyena like finds her babies being bullied by other hyena she'll make like a false alarm predator call like oh and she'll like pretend that there's a predator coming to distract the hyenas so she can the other hyenas that are bullying their baby so she can protect them i'm like that's pretty that's pretty awesome so they do have a lot of different vocal sounds they make that mean different things and in the way they communicate that's really neat i do feel like they get a bad rep in this story you know like i think pullman really is playing on the mean stuff and obviously, this hyena is different, right? Like, Gerard yeah. Bonvie is not like other guys. He's different. Uh, why Why do all the bad demons have no names? Oh, you're know. right. We don't know the, the hyena's name. I never even thought about that. I haven't noticed that. It's so unfair. If it was a Pokemon, its name would be Haha. <laughs> <laughs> or he he, right? but yeah i think that's great like what you said and it really goes to show all the different faces right that gerard bonvi has the different ways that he performs in front of you know different people and and to get what he wants but as you said the hyena is getting a bad rap you know you you have one lion king movie and after that like that's all anyone sees yeah, they're kind of misunderstood like vultures. They are scavengers, but the great thing about scavengers is they clean up their environment. Mm. You know, they eat the carcasses that could spread diseases. But actually, uh, they're, they are hunters too. And I think in some cases, the lions actually steal from hyenas uh, mm-hmm. rather than the other way around. Huh. So yeah, lion, the Lion King taught us all wrong, for sure. Real screwy. And Pullman mm. is not helping. No. Justice for hyenas. Except this one. Yeah. Uh, even this one. I mean, nature versus yeah, nurture. Right. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Listen. You're right. Demon nature you versus right. nurture. Bonvi really messed that demon up. Malcolm asks the giant what could make him open these gates, and the giant's like, orders. So Malcolm pulls out his rucksack. Well, Bonvi's rucksack. And he says, I have orders, a passport of sort from the king's ambassador in Oxford. He holds up the mathematical formula-ridden paperwork, and the giant examines it, turns it upside down, right side left, all the way around for a few minutes before saying, you know, this is undeniable. I can't argue with it. These are papers. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if this was meant to be funny, but I thought it was really funny. Oh, yeah pretending like he can read but what he says is probably true he's looking at math you know so it's probably correct and and i like how he just interprets this it's it's undeniable you know he can't argue with it the king of it's not it's it's not saying what he thinks it says but it's probably still correct whatever it is on that paper uh and malcolm gets like that whiff of him smells like mud fish weeds they're so close. They're like, please just let me through. And the giant's like, can I hold the princess? And he's like, I see she's a princess. I, I can obviously just see her majesty from looking at her. So they're like, all right. 
Malcolm puts her in his enormous palm and Lyra gazes at the giant while Pan sings like a nightingale. It all like really works out. You know, they're like, I trust, I trust this enormous man. And they were right too. <laughs> this enormous mud himbo. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Absolutely. And he kisses his forefinger and then touches it to Lyra's head. Feels like a blessing of some sort. I don't know what it means. Then he hands her deliberately back. He promises to let them through and not to let anyone without the orders through. And before they go, Malcolm asks, wait, what was the garden that was back there? And the giant tells them, that's the place where people go when they forget. The fog is hiding everything they ought to remember. If it cleared away, they'd have to take stock of themselves. They wouldn't be able to stay in the garden no more. And... I will say that, you know, speaking of the underworld, that does remind me a little bit of the rivers of Nemesine and I forgot the other one, but the other one's about forgetting. Nemesine is about remembering memories, but so a little bit like that. There's a lot of mythos in there that I do want to circle back to in a little bit for sure. Yeah. And they back off to give the giant some room and the giant sticks his trident in the bank before sinking back below. Malcolm drives them through, and they hear the distant laughter die off as the gate closes back up. Five minutes later, they've paddled through the pitch dark, and they finally come through the tunnel to open air. Alice finally points out what's been killing her, that they went down into the tunnel, so they should have had to come up to get out of the tunnel, but they're on the same level, just like with the maze right at the aisle earlier. And who was that man thing? Malcolm's like, I think that's the god of the tributary, Father Tem. He's the god of the main river. He remembers George Boatwright saying he had met Father Thames, and Alice prides him on remembering what the fairy woman said. Yeah, so I'm not sure I, I was able to figure out which river this one might be, but I want to let everyone know, you know, there's a lot to say about old Father Thames and, and the Thames, right, of course, as this magical river people have talked about it but i just want to point out there's a song from 1933 called old father thames i'm not gonna sing it for all of you i recommend you all look it up it's i didn't absorb the the melody enough but it's a it's a fun jaunty song we'll have to drop the link in the description and maybe maybe if we ever revisit La Belle Sauvage someday we'll get eliana to karaoke it you know i mean i could do it i guess it's just yeah I'm not going to make you. It could be fun someday. Someday, you know, it's it seems like Practice a good it, it seems like a good drinking song. You know, if one day we all find ourselves at a bar together or something, we could all bust it out. Yeah, is it like a sea shanty? It feels a little bit like that to me, but also I'm sure if I actually said it was, people would tell me I was wrong. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not a sea shanty expert. So. <laughs> there was a time, right, like recently on the internet, sea shanties were really in. Yeah, TikTok. Yeah. The old yeah. TikTok TikToks. did it. Well, they paddle under the moon and Alice falls asleep. Mal sees an island ahead with no grass, trees, or buildings and floats towards it, thinking of tying up, although it's quite exposed. He moves the Belle Sauvage toward the shore and suddenly anxiously remembers the resin in the boat and checks in a panic to see if it's still dry. A voice then comes, which scares the shit out of him, saying that <laughs> it's safe. And then appears a woman about the age of Lyra's mother, wearing a flower crown with long black hair and black ribbons of silk, staring at them. She looks like she'd expected them, but also she has no demon, just a branch of pine. And Malcolm's like, 
Is that her demon? <laughs> <laughs> this is so funny. Oh my god. Earth I laughed a lot. I laughed so much when I read that. Uh, like thinking of, I don't know, like a stick. Just someone be like, so that's yeah, stick. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Stick stickly or something. Uh, it reminds me of the <laughs> oh Wonder Twins. The Wonder Twins and they're like, form of a bucket of water. Oh my like, that's yeah. my demon, form of a board. A fucking piece fucking of wood. Fucking Plank from Ed, Ed and Eddie. Ed and yes. Eddie, yup. Jimmy and Plank. Oh, God. For <laughs> you, Well. I think you unlocked uh, like a a core memory when you said stick stickly stick. just now. Oh my god! His voice is like this. I don't know. That's that's the demon's voice. Imagine. Okay. Well, she introduces herself as queen of the Onega region, which is Tilda Vasara, and that she she's like he's like, where did you come from? She's like, I came from the sky, and I'm like. Wow, she really gave that answer, huh? She just told him I came from the sky. And <laughs> so rude. <laughs> Near the canoe, a white bird whispers to Alice's demon, and he's like, oh, wait. So that's her demon. <laughs> but why is she all the way over there? What What was she whispering? I, I, I could see ahead in the notes, but may- maybe it was just a sleeping spell. I don't know. But I was like, what, what is she What is she telling them? What's going on? And we don't find That's out. That's true. Yeah. So. I kind of thought it was just like, you know how that happens in all the books that whenever a witch shows up, her demon will always be like, hey, yo, I'm gonna come talk to you little demons mm-hmm. and tell you what's up while my person speaks to your person. I think that's just what was happening, but now I kind of want to know. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I don't know. The fact that she was speaking to Ben and not Asta, I was like, mm-hmm. Alice is sleeping. Like, what? I don't know. And then she wakes mm-hmm. up not knowing, not seemingly knowing, or maybe she does. I don't know. You know, honestly- This was confusing for me. <laughs> we should ask Philip Pullman to clarify, you know, if Alice has any thoughts. I think Alice might have some thoughts that she could tell us. On what happened to her. Phil. Yeah. Yep. Um. Uh, I will say, it turns out the on- Onega region, just like the Lake Inara region, is also real. This one, though, is in Russia, and that's it. That That's all I have for you. Well, it's funny you say that, because, like, Tilda, the name, is Germanic, oh, really? actually. I, I was wondering if it was going to be something closer, but it's Germanic. I didn't see anything for her last name, but also, it's a short form of Matilda. Huh. And short for warrior and battle strength. Well, that seems right for a witch. Yeah, for for Tilda Vasara of the Onega region. Well, Tilda says that Alice and Ben and Lyra will sleep now for the rest of the night, and the people passing on the CCD light behind them will not be able to see their group for the evening. Malcolm fights the urge to hide from the light that suddenly appears, casting over from them from the CCD search boat, but miraculously... They don't see them. Tilda explains witches can make themselves invisible, with vision sliding over them and things nearby. The island will be safe. Malcolm explains that those people want to capture the baby, maybe even kill her. Tilda asks if Alice is her mother, and Malcolm explains they're taking her to her father in London. So, of course, along with, you know, of course, seeing a witch in general, we get that call back to the main series, to Will and... Serafina with the magic that makes themselves invisible. With Will, it isn't magic, but because it's not magic, that almost makes it more magical. But <laughs> so, quick.
quick reminder of the mechanics of this world and their magic. Malcolm asks what her demon is, and she explains all witch demons are birds, and hers is an arctic tern. He asks what she's doing here, so far from the north, and she says that, oh, she was looking for something, and now that she's found it, she'll go home. Not mysterious at all. From the sky. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He thanks her for hiding them, and examines her expression in the moonlight. Indescribably ancient. Ah, like the title of the chapter. Maybe like the giant in the water, but somehow young. She looks calm, but also merciless. Tilda is just as curious about this weird little boy, too, and she stares at him as well, and they both feel, for just a moment, as if they have perfect openness, as if no secrets existed between them. Then she springs into the air, and off they both go, but there were secrets between them, because she told them she was from the sky. (laughs) Is it? Just me, or is Malcolm way too trusting of these supernatural beings after their run-in with the fairy? I mean, like, he's not wrong in these last two cases with River Himbo and, you know, obviously (laughs) the witch that's clearly looking to make sure Lyra's okay, but still, you think he would have maybe learned something. I don't know. It is interesting that, like, with the fairy, he was like, what do you mean? You fly, you have a flying ship? a gyropter you know a zeppelin uh but now he's like oh this all makes sense i get it now he just accepts it i don't know i guess if if i was as tired uh from rowing as malcolm was i'd probably be in the same situation but uh. that boy is gonna have biceps you know you'd you'd think (laughs) that is that that kid's gonna have some guns some arm day happening there arm week sucker (sighs) <sighs> yeah, they they keep eating the fairy food, as I'm sure we'll get to, and hanging out with witches. Malcolm's just, like, really blasé about it all. Yeah. But I do appreciate Tilda is very much so, you know, coming to witness and beholding the child of the prophecy and all that jazz here. Definitely touching, uh, especially because they finally get to sleep. That That's pretty big. You know, I think that's a big one. I want that for them, sleeping. Yeah, Lyra got a lot of it in her series, you know, and... It's only fitting. (laughs) It's only right. Malcolm crouches by the canoe, pulling the blanket closer and onto Alice and Lyra, and asks Asta if she's tired. They are both fucking exhausted. The island is utterly bare, like a part of the moon. They sit on a rock, watching the water flow past and talk about the witch. Malcolm liked her, but doesn't think that they'll see her again. Asta wonders if what she'd been looking for was them. And Malcolm's like, don't be silly, she's a queen. He gets sleepy, and they go settle in the boat with the girls. That night, he dreamed of the wild dogs again, his savage dogs, with bloodstained muzzles and torn ears and broken teeth, with wild eyes and slavering jaws and scarred flanks, howling and barking as they raced around him, surging up to lick his face, thrusting themselves at his hands, rubbing themselves against his legs, a tumult of canine fury, with him at its heart and center, humbling themselves before cat-formed Asta, and as before, he felt no fear. He felt nothing but savage exhilaration and boundless delight. Yeah, interesting. You know, these dogs come back later. Uh, Raida's Malcolm does the old one-two, the old murder, you know, and like maybe this is more of a sidebar. I don't really have any real feelings about it beyond like, it's pretty edgelord, Phil. It's pretty... I mean, is it or is it inspired by the Bahaman? Uh, who did let <laughs> the dogs out? Who? 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 
All right, well, glossing over <laughs> the Baja man himself, Philip Pullman. Coming off of that island from last chapter, and off of this meeting with the witch and with River Himbo, I do think that that island kind of symbolizes Avalon in many mm. ways. Avalon is, of course, a magical island said to have existed off the coast of Britain and vanquished, uh, just disappeared after some time. It was famous for its beautiful apples, much like some of the mythology we've discussed before on the golden fruit, and it's a part of a lot of different stories, especially in Arthurian stories. In Celtic mythology, it's associated with the afterlife and is believed to exist outside of normal time. It was thought to be accessible by islands off of Britain's coast. The Celts believed the islands were mystical gateways and referred to them as the Isles of the Dead. Avalon was an island similar kind of to the fields of Elysium, hmm. where crops would flourish, people would live extraordinarily long lives. Of course, uh, Morgan Le Fay was very strongly associated with the island. It was her home of the Celtic goddess, as well as the Lady of the Lake. And Tilda here, appearing on this island out of nowhere, gleaming, shining, offering sleep and protection to these children, very much so feels like a Lady of the Lake character, or even Morgan Le Fay with the witchcraft hmm. reference, especially since she's appearing to the hero before he has to, you know, do the hero thing in the next chapter. That's interesting. The Lady of the Lake. We just met her, Tilda yeah. Vassara. It is another one of those, like, lakes, so yeah, absolutely. Um, I like that idea, and obviously, you know, I, I think that the Avalon callout is a great reference, because Pullman clearly has a lot of references, right, to a lot of different kinds of mythology throughout his stories, and, and here, right, a lot of that British mythology, so I think that makes sense. And, you know, side note, the other author whose books we follow, did Once Upon a Time have an Avalon series that did not get finished. <laughs> to, to the chagrin well, of know, one of my co-hosts in my other podcast, uh, Maester Monthly, because I too am ancient. You know, uh, you are. The, the chapter Ancientry, the biggest meta I want to provide you all is that it's about Eliana. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, but it's funny you say that because there's also like, there's a series, the Mists of Avalon series. Mm. And the idea of the mist on the island Avalon is supposed to be clouding for forgetfulness, like you were oh. speaking of the rivers and memory. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting, too. I, I do think they're related. And there's just so much fun lore and mythology and different stories that have kind of taken that Arthurian legend and play with it. And it is definitely that idea of that missing British island, you know, that missing piece of magic that's been forced to disappear from modern eye and modern culture. So, yeah, that leads us to the that is the end that closes us out for Ancient Tree. So that takes us over to the mausoleum or as Malcolm would say it, mausoleum. Oh my god. Uh, tired, hungry, cold, and filthy. Yes, filthy. The trio is paddling their way over the water, stopping to change Lyra when they can. But something else is following them, just out of eyesight, flickering beyond, and they both notice it. Malcolm thinks it could be a night guest, but it isn't dark quite yet. Alice is unhappy with his speculation. She's like, oh, great, a night ghast. She's sounding pretty bitter, scornful, and like the old Alice he once knew. This made me think of you, Chloe, because I just kept thinking <laughs> Prisoner Zero has escaped. Ugh, um, out of the corner of your eye. It is. It is suspenseful, <laughs> like sci-fi horror, right? A, a night ghast just behind you. I love that, though. It's a perfect Doctor Who reference. Uh, mm. 
You'll get there someday. I'll get there someday. I got to. I, I guess that was only episode two. My bad. Um, the skin. But I was like, oh, it's the meme. <laughs> <laughs> Moisturize me. Oh, that's so, that's so good. Well, man. Malcolm wants to talk to Asta, but knows they're all too close in the canoe to really discuss anything. So the landscape changes as they work their way toward London, and devastating scenes emerge from the flood's destruction. At the head of it is an oratory, a tower lying on the ground, enormous bronze bells scattered beside it, and of course, the shadow followed them. Malcolm tries to catch the shadow by looking just suddenly to the left or right, but only sees the movement it left behind. Asta tries too. They agree it wouldn't matter if it felt like a friendly shadow, but it doesn't really feel friendly right now. Alice keeps an eye out from her better angle in the bow, and she called out Warnix a few times throughout their day, a CCD vote, for example, that seemed to follow them. The sky starts to rumble later in the afternoon, and they pull up the tarp to keep dry. As they make to pull it up, a searchlight catches their boat, and they realize if they don't hide quickly, they will be caught. The only place they can find to hide is a wooded hill with overgrown grass. Alice has a really bad feeling about this hill, but there's nowhere else, so they land and fix up the tarp hastily. Once the canopy is still, Alice holds Lyra, keeping her quiet, and Malcolm holds his breath. The searchlight shines through their canopy, and they stay still, hoping to blend in in the shadows. The searchlight swings away eventually. Alice lets out a breath, saying, I wish we'd gone somewhere else. And then she explains, this is a graveyard, and it has one of those little houses people are buried in, too. And yes, that is when Malcolm realizes what it is, a mausoleum. He had seen the word, though, never heard it, and he pronounced it to rhyme with linoleum. You know, mausoleum. I don't see why not. (laughs) It works just as well. It's just a reminder that sometimes people learn words by reading them, and you should never judge pronunciations. Pronunciations are so regional to talk about Secret Commonwealth just a slight bit. You say Olivier, uh, but I'm from South Louisiana where everything's got like a French twist on it. So it's Olivier for me. And but Mm -hmm. like, no hate. It's just we all say things different. Mm -hmm. And I say Bonneville because it makes Chloe unhappy. And listen, (laughs) I pronounce that canonically right. It's Bonvie. Mm -hmm. First of all, Eliana, I've heard the author say it. Okay. Michael Sheen says Bonneville. <laughs> I know, actually. Amazing. Uh, our Discord has Amazing. brought that up a few times. Amazing. Oh, it's so good. It's uh, great. I feel pleased. This has made my day. It made me laugh. I, it, I laughed um, on the early episodes of this series on your podcast because that came up and I was and I was thinking the whole time I was like well Michael Sheen's been saying it incorrectly the whole book too and then you think about Roy Dotrice rip yeah um, you know. With a song of ice and fire. I uh, love yeah. it. I'll, I'll never forget Patire and Brian. <laughs> There's like more leeway there, you know, for a song of ice and fire. Whereas, you know, some of these names, right, are kind of more real world-ish. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? Malcolm doesn't like where we are. He doesn't like this mausoleum and says we've got to change Lyra quickly and try to leave as soon as possible and Alice is combative to his plans reminding him that Lyra is a baby and they at least have to build a fire to get some hot water for her but it's pretty obvious that something is pissing her off but Malcolm avoids the confrontation thinking of all the things he'd rather talk to her about like 
the fog beyond the banks of the weird island and the shadow that was following them. He wanted to tell her about the witch and ponder the meaning of the wild dogs and have her admire him for fixing the crack in the hull of La Belle Sauvage. You have this line. He wanted her to call him Mal. He wanted Lyra to feel warm and clean and happy and well-fed, but none of that was going to happen. It's kind of a bummer. It is a bummer. Life sucks, Malcolm. Welcome to being an adult. (laughs) You cross that river, home skillet. Yeah, you get dust on you and you're like, shit, I'm dirty. Life sucks the rest (laughs) of your life. It's not not all bad. It's it's not all bad. Um, It's just mostly bad. The rain is beating so hard, Malcolm doesn't even notice Lyra's crying. Alice tends to her being very patient, even though she's pretty cross of Malcolm for dragging them into all of this at this moment. He thinks about running to find dry wood in the trees before it gets too wet out, and a crack of thunder beats down a distance away. The rain starts to slow a bit after that, and Malcolm edges out of the canopy. Everything is wet and smells like dank rot and vegetation, and worms crawl to the top of the earth. Okay, we get it. It's a metaphor, right? Like the worms in a graveyard and the mausoleum coming to the top. Bone V coming back from the dead like the worms, you know, to come ruin their goddamn day once more. It's a metaphor. I get it. I like worms. Um, I do too. It's also like, you know, it's another way, right? I'm not saying that the fairies, right, or all the magical folk are worms, right? They're They're very majestic, clearly, but... When it's damp, right, the worms come out from the earth. Mm -hmm. Uh, You did say in the last episode, too, like, they're being forced up with the water, right? Yeah. People being forced from below. So this is that physical manifestation of that, absolutely. But the worms are, like, happy about it, I guess. And then, like, afterwards it dries up, and then, I like worms, you know, sometimes you pick them up and you put them back in the grass. Yeah, you want them to have a good life. Mm -hmm. You can use the worms to go fishing. Oh, that's Uh, true, you could. (laughs) (laughs) oh i love it malcolm moves to get more wood and alice tells him to not go too far and to keep out of sight he has a hard time finding anything dry and thinks about burning bonneville's notes asta tells him not to think that that they are important notes he ends up taking a dozen fence posts that look dry enough and brings them to the front of the mausoleum asta says they can't hurt us if they're dead referring to the mausoleum He breaks the padlock, and in they go to the damp air. No smell of death, though. They just see rows of shelves and with coffins placed on them and perfectly dry wood. Malcolm apologizes to the skeleton in the first coffin, who looked to be a woman, and tells her that they'll give her another one later. Seeing the skeleton doesn't bother Mal, he'd seen worse, and he was expecting it. He thinks it must have been a woman, noting her golden necklace and two rings on the skeleton. It does feel symbolic, right? Because they've kind of been stealing and taking as they go not a dissimilar way to will and lyra right in the subtle knife and will who's such a good boy and is like we have to leave money lyra we can't just steal stuff it's not right uh malcolm is very apologetic right i think that's very very sweet they've been borrowing throughout their journey from people and places and after this even at the grocer they do it again This entire passage felt so reminiscent of Lyra Roger and the Scholars in the Northern Lights, especially this part of it that I thought was very interesting. Once she tried to play a trick on some of the dead Scholars by switching around the coins in their skulls so they were with the wrong demons. Panalaman became so agitated at this, he changed into a bat and flew up and down, uttering shrill cries, flapping his wings in her face. But she took no notice, 
It was too good a joke to waste. She paid for it later, though. In bed in her narrow room at the top of the staircase, she was visited by a night guest and woke up screaming at the three robed figures who stood at the bedside pointing their bony fingers before throwing back their cowls to show bleeding stumps where their heads should have been. Only when Panalaman became a lion and roared at them did they retreat, backing away into the substance of the wall until all that was visible was their arms, then their horny yellow-gray hands, then their twitching fingers, then nothing. First thing in the morning, she hastened down to the catacombs and restored the demon coins to their rightful places and whispered, sorry, sorry, to the skulls. Hmm. <laughs> this is baby's first <laughs> trip to the cemetery slash crypt. It is. <laughs> I, I love this. I thought this was cute. It is the perfect precursor, right? And she tempts fate. She plays with fate and tempts it when she does this trick because she's like, it's too good of a gag. Too big of a prank. I can't I can't sit out on it. Uh, but Malcolm acts super apologetic from the get-go, which could help their cause. Although, Malcolm and Alice do have their own night guest, right? Mm-hmm. Gerard Bonvie. So, I don't know. I think that's kind of an intentional parallel in the way Bonvie has been following them like a shadow in the past few chapters. True. True. And he's also very much kind of like a... <sighs> When I think about it, it, he reminds me a little of the Terminator, right? And that his ability yes. to just keep following, and 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 that really does strike something, right? There's a reason that chase things like that are really anxiety-inducing and effective for not just storytelling, but in general, because people are like humans. Part of the way we evolved, right, is to be endurance runners. We were hunters. Now I just hunt burritos actually no (laughs) and you know gather chips hunt burritos and but like we were a terrifying predator because other animals right they would get tired and we could just keep chasing after them endurance right um whereas a lot of them were just like sprints and stuff right and the idea of something else having more endurance than us and being able to chase us is i think it speaks to something really primal in humans how did you know what I ate for lunch today, Eliana? A burrito. <laughs> or chips. Yeah, I both. did have a burrito. It was the burrito. Mm, tell us how you hunted Just the burrito. It. Did you, did you uh, slay it with a spear? Um, I drove my car to, to it. <laughs> and then um, there was other cars also mm. waiting for burritos. So I did not wait with the cars. And I, I went a different way in, wow. indoors into the dining area. and um, Natural I mean, the, selection the bur- at its the, finest. For real. I mean the burrito den and and picked one and left a gift in exchange uh for the other for the rest of the burritos you know i think you're gonna survive a lot more than the other burrito hunters holly (laughs) i think you have what it takes absolutely you have the yeah you have it i had less time to to acquire and and consume my burrito than than the other burrito hunters today so i had to (laughs) take a different take a different route it was a time of need (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know for what it's worth we do have to hand it <laughs> got a skeleton hand it e. to malcolm uh <laughs> he he treats the skeleton very respectfully he actually hides the skeleton's jewelry like their jewels beneath the velvet that the skeleton lays on to discourage theft and apologizes again for taking her lid before splintering it up against the shelf kicking it, getting ready to take it back. He closes up the mausoleum, puts the broken padlock down, and he glances around to go back to the canoe. He signals to Alice with the torch, but then 
he sees the shadow again. But now it's not a shadow, it's transformed and it's bon vie. He runs back to the boat where Alice is singing a nursery rhyme to Lyra. He can't hide his fear, and she sees it instantly, but he tries to play it off as a mistake. He tells himself he imagined it because he hadn't seen the hyena, so it's impossible that it's bon vie. They couldn't paddle away. This is the only land for miles. Lyra needs food and warmth, and the CCD boat is still on the move looking for them just out there. Malcolm makes a fire. Lyra cries steadily while Alice changes her, and they have just enough wood to make Lyra's milk. When they're done, Malcolm kicks the ashes away, and getting into the, uh, the water just sounds awful. It just sounds awful to him. It does not sound fun. It sounds horrible. Alice asks him if there's any candle left. He rummages, finds the remainder. It's only as long as his thumb, but they light it, and Lyra sucks her thumb, looking into the flame. Alice whispers. She asks Malcolm what he saw. He says he thought it looked like him for a second, but then it was nothing. Nothing was there. Alice murmurs, they should have been sure. They should have done him in for good. Malcolm pipes up finally and is like, What happens to someone's demon when they die? And Alice responds, They just vanish. And then Asta and Ben are in the background like, What the fuck? You don't just talk about this shit. This is cruel. We are right here. Like, this is so rude. You don't just say these things in front of demons. But it's also themselves, right? They're, again, pondering those big questions and having a lot of these there's a lot of issues coming up for them right now and they have to make these really big decisions and so the mausoleum right it is a place that is dedicated to the death of this one very particularly important adult and and it's something to be associated in general right with the death of adults someone who is important enough that they get this whole huge building but i think it's also of course this moment that's the death of malcolm's innocence i'm reluctant to say that it's the death of Alice's because I don't want to think about it in terms of the things that happen in this chapter that we're going to talk about shortly but also I mean Alice has been forced into the role of a caretaker already for a while early on in her life much like Will was Mm -hmm. and sure like her demon hasn't settled yet but yeah I I mean I, I guess this whole journey is though in many ways that for both of them yeah she is described I mean at the start of the story of being on the verge of her demon settling, right? And it's interesting that he doesn't explore that for her much further. He doesn't really add anything for Alice as far as closure to that. I do find that interesting. We just know Ben eventually settles. I guess we kind of don't for Malcolm also. I remember one time you told me and I was like, what the fuck? Then I realized I'd actually technically (laughs) read it in the novella before, so it wasn't really a spoiler, but I felt a little spoiled, but... Yeah, well... You got over it. I got over it pretty fast. <laughs> Did you die, though? <laughs> my innocence? That that was the death uh, of my innocence in that moment. All right, innocence experience. Oh. <laughs> Take us away. Malcolm tries to figure all of this into the idea of a night gas, where they can move around on their own, but they don't have any demons. And Alice says... You never get a person without a demon, though. It's impossible. And Ben is again like, shut up! (laughs) Can't deal. And then they talk about it hurts too much when you try to pull them apart. And then inside, they're also like, shut up, shut up, shut up. Malcolm says he's heard of places where people exist without demons, though. 
Maybe they're just dead bodies walking around. Asta becomes a terrier, like Ben, and they growl together at them, terrified, telling them <laughs> to stop. They're like, what the fuck is wrong with our humans? Uh, Lyra <laughs> begins to complain about the dog growling, and Alice sweet talks her, quite literally, by pulling out a little piece of toast for Lyra, which we find out later on she only has a few teeth, so like... What's going on here? I guess they're desperate, right? And she's mm. like, later on, we're going to find you the tiny little quail egg that goes with that. I'm like, is this not a choking hazard? Anyway, Malcolm realizes that, oh, Alice stole this food from the garden. And Alice says she'd actually stolen a bunch from the waiters because they didn't care. And she leans over to give him a spicy fish cake. And Malcolm thinks that maybe if they run out of milk, they can just feed her this stuff. More supernatural snackage happening. Uh, that quail egg on toast sounds really good. This scene made me hungry. Yeah. Really buttery, really buttery and smooth. It just sounds so good. I bet it's so smooth. And like, again, like you mentioned, they're not shying away from this supernatural stuff, Holly, at all. They're in it to win it. They're like, yeah, let's just feed this baby not just human food, but fairy food. Yeah, right. Are there consequences? Hmm. Also, mm. speaking of people mispronouncing things, I think Alice also has a creative pronunciation, right, for canapes. It's spelled a little differently, and she tries to remember what they were called, I think. That's cute. Yeah, I, d I almost didn't notice that. That's really funny. <laughs> Unless that is, like, I don't know how some people spell it, but I thought that's what it was sort of indicating. Yeah, I think it's uh, sounding it out. Sometimes she does that, you know? Yeah. Malcolm hears something from outside. It's Gerard Bonvie, and he's softly whispering, Alice. Alice freezes, and Malcolm freezes for a moment, too, looking for her reaction and regretting that because she looks terrified. Lyra munches her toast, unaware of the danger, but suddenly it's just the wind passing by outside the boat, just the lapping of water. The candle's flame starts to act weird, you know, like every horror suspense movie you've ever seen. It gives out light, but suddenly it has a shadow. The searchlight had returned. Alice gasps and stifles her gasp with her hand, and immediately moves it to stifle Lyra's eventual chatter. They both see and hear the engine noise and the light beam, but the beam moves as the searchers are slowly nearing the graveyard and the water. Alice gives Lyra to Malcolm, because she feels like she's going to faint, and Malcolm can see the light doesn't frighten her, but Gerard Bonvie does. He hears another whisper and feels desperate to help Alice, but she tells him to shut up and she covers her ears. Ben stands on his legs, half on the gunwale, half on her. Malcolm can't distinguish what the whispers are saying, but he can hear them more distinctly as Alice's expressions are changing over and over from disgust to horror to anguish. Alright everyone, and as we said up top at the beginning of this episode, we do have a trigger warning for moments of sexual assault slash sexual violence, and we are coming upon that. So if that is something that you would rather not listen to, please feel free to tune out now. And again, thank you so much for listening to, I mean, this book with us, right? The Books of Dust. And we are going to come back and see you again with the Amber Spy Class. Yes. If you are here still with us, Gerard has cut the tarp, he's choking Alice and searching for Lyra, feeling all over Alice, and Ben is in his terrier form and biting Gerard, but then Gerard grabs Ben, ripping him from Alice, who scrambles after him. The hyena demon laughs and Pan flutters as a moth onto Lyra. Malcolm realizes he must go save Alice from being assaulted by Gerard Bonneville, but he can't make himself leave Lyra. 
Asta tells him to go, that she'll watch Lyra, and he says that he can't, it'll hurt so much. And he kisses Lyra, and then holds and kisses puppy Asta to his face. He separates from Asta, and he feels so much pain and regret and guilt. Asta turns into a little leopard cub, and Malcolm forces himself to move forward through the pain. Bonneville is assaulting Alice, and Malcolm feels the rage of the dogs from his dream build within him, and he hits the hyena on the head over and over with the paddle to free Ben from the hyena's grasp. This language describing Bonneville's demon with Ben is extremely disturbing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I have it the quote here, but I almost don't even want to read it, um, just because it's, it's just gross. Here we go. Jaws and teeth closing slowly, voluptuously, ecstatically on his little form. This is not the same behavior he had with Sister Katerina, uh, that demon exchange, and it's extremely horrifying. The book that I have has, I don't know if all the other book versions have full page illustrations in them, but mine does. And there's, there's for some reason, an illustration of this scene with Bonneville standing over Alice in the background and in the foreground, the hyena with Ben in his mouth, and then Malcolm coming up with the paddle to like, hit Bonneville. And it's just like, why? Why? Why do we need this picture? Um, Yeah, I don't think we do. It's gross. I, and I forgot, I guess I, and like I said, I've mostly listened to it, but I, I did buy this this beautiful, beautiful mm. book. And and then and then I found that as I was kind of rereading to prepare for this podcast. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe that's included in here. That's really gross. Yeah, I was surprised at that artwork being so, I don't know, graphic. I, I think just we all understand the connection at this point if you're this invested in the series with Demon and with human mm-hmm. so to see it like that it does feel like a very graphic piece of artwork yeah yeah and the way that they describe this assault more vividly for for the demons than they do for bonneville and alice just brings it to another level uh of gross for me mm-hmm. yeah i can't tell if that's like a workaround so that it's not depicted right because this is like in a an in-between state i guess a young adult mm-hmm sort of novel and though there are there is young adult fiction right that does address issues of sexual assault and sexual violence i think explicitly and and well handles it with care but it it's a strange choice it's a strange choice as you said for that to be the illustration i have a paperback copy of the book that does not have illustrations so thanks for sharing that with us and and that fact but as you said it, it 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 is very pointed when contrasted with the earlier scene with Sister Katerina. Yeah. A couple things that do stand out are that earlier he didn't think it was Bone V, or he tried to convince himself it wasn't Bone V because he didn't see the hyena demon, versus he just learned that not everybody's demon is with them forever next to them in that little bubble uh, via Tilda Vicera. So it kind of feels like he's lying to himself a little bit to pretend it's not Bone V because he's scared in the beginning of this chapter. But now, obviously, we're very aware it it was Bone V and that Bone V and the hyena were nowhere near each other. So I think that was kind of a confirmation, right, of of his separation, which I think we already kind of all assumed because the way he fucked up and treats his demon, a la Marisa. But I'd also noticed that here Asta turns into a leopard. Right, when he forces himself to walk away and sever from Asta, and it makes me wonder if maybe 
they were choosing the leopard after Stalmaria to be brave like Asriel in mm. that moment. Just thoughts. I think I think so. Maybe I don't know if it was like that definitely is what they're trying to emulate there, right? Um and in that way Malcolm becomes that protector figure for Lyra. But what you were saying about Bonneville and the hyena demon separating and being able to be much further than one would expect a human and their demon to be, I think, adds another layer to the pain that Alice is in. Because okay. if Bonneville and his hyena are further than people should be, that means Ben and Alice are as well. That is why she had to stumble after him, right? Because he took Ben. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, is another... Mode of the violation. Well, Malcolm tries to choose the wolf inside of him that will help him punish Bonneville, but also wants Bonneville to tell him about the Ruzikoff field. This is literally not the time. Um, so he chooses yeah, right. the wolf with the Ruzikoff field. I guess he was just like, this one's most impersonal and unimpassioned, therefore allows me to inflict more violence, I guess is where, where what it's trying to say. And then Bonneville, like, says dust and then Malcolm embraces all of the dogs and thinks about Alice and Lyra and slams the paddle once more into Bonneville and then Bonneville dies Alice asks where Asta is and he says that they had to separate to guard Lyra they drag Bonneville to the water together and the CCD boat and searchlight is nowhere to be found Lyra is fast asleep Asta is by her side at the end of her strength and Malcolm holds Asta and they weep, and Alice trembles while Ben cleans the blood off her gently. It does remind me of, of course, the the initial severing that breaks all of our hearts in the series, right? And when Will tries to argue and negotiate with the ferryman, with the boatman, and he's like, be compassionate, let her take her demon. And he says, it's not a rule you can break, it's a law like this one. He leaned over the side and cupped a handful of water and then tilted his hand so it ran out again. The law that makes the water fall back into the lake. It's a law like that. I can't tilt my hand and make the water fly upward. No more could I take her demon to the land of the dead. Whether or not she comes, he must stay. Just the idea of water and the way that water flows and how water will always flow back into the lake there and what the ferryman said to Will and Lyra, it really came back during this time. It reminded me of that. Yeah. Mm. But did the ferryman try hard enough, all right? Because we just saw that you can be up in the air in the water. Oh my god. <laughs> <sighs> but Ask Phil, okay? But you're right. Absolutely is reminiscent of that scene in here. Like Lyra, choosing between those two duties. It's very cyclical, right? Uh, using water in general, just for t like you were talking about with transitions mm -hmm. from passages of life earlier, too. Uh, it's just very cyclical and like the idea of like growing up and sacrificing the part of you and getting rid of something, a part of you and having to leave it behind as you go on that pain. Returning to the water like a Tully. I will say at least here, you know, unlike with Pan, who wasn't entirely sure what was happening, Asta mm -hmm. encourages Malcolm to do this and has consented to it, right? Yeah. Makes a huge difference. Although, 20 minutes ago, if you asked Asta. Yeah, Asta's like, I don't like this. But I guess that's part that's part of why it's constructed that way, right? Because you wanted they mm -hmm. wanted to play up like how painful it would be. For Asta and then also for Ben, of course, in these moments. Yeah. Alice pulls a blanket over 
both herself and Ben, and then Malcolm puts Lyra in his arms with their demons between them and the blankets wrapped around them. He pinches out the candle, and they rest. Well, they do deserve a nap after that goddamn horrible nightmare of a day. Uh, And I deserve a nap, personally, after that nightmare of a passage. But I digress. Uh, I... Hmm. I don't like that Pullman is utilizing assault to heighten the stakes and prove to us that this is an adult book. If you have not read The Secret Commonwealth, I will not say anything right now, and I'm sure we'll discuss more of these kind of repercussions in the discussion later, but this assault of Alice did not serve as anything for her character. It served as character growth for Malcolm only, and at the same time, it was portrayed as kind of a lesser suffering than severing uh, to make Hmm. Philip really spent time making the point being that severing is the most awful feeling in the world. Obviously, there's no clarity as to whether Alice and Ben did sever in this moment, too. On a more visceral level, I would say, like, as someone who's been assaulted, I would say you probably are severed from your soul when you're assaulted. That Pullman doesn't choose to follow up on that or face any of that in his storytelling is something interesting. If I was writing a series about humans and their attachment to their soul in kind of an animal form, I would probably interface with that a little more. I don't know. I think this is such a solid story with a bunch of really great lore, great supernatural lore. And even if he had left it really vague as to what happened here or had left this out, I would probably have no qualms with it, but he doesn't. I don't think that Philip Pullman understands how powerless being assaulted makes you feel, how you feel every day in your life after being assaulted. And it's different for many people, but I don't think he specifically understands how that feels. And it's disappointing coming from a reader of another fantasy series that does have violence against women pretty regularly used. Uh, And sometimes it can be gratuitous in some aspects. And that can be disappointing too, but it's a different disappointment. This use of assault as a plot device really felt like use of assault as a plot device to me. There are ways to leverage your tension, and the moments before Alice is dragged from the tent are some of the creepiest, most intense, suspenseful moments. But you don't need to assault your only female main character in order to make them worthy of existing in the plot. You can build this tension without that, and I don't know, we can talk and connect the dots later with how this translates through in The Secret Commonwealth, but this is kind of a dark plot that has no major ramifications or consequences for this main female character, or like, you know, any plot effect or any discussion on how it affected her and her life and what happens in her life because of it. And that's disappointing and frustrating. Yeah, and I think what's disappointing and frustrating is it's it's barely a plot, right? And I, I think yeah. everything that you said, it's it's very true. And I know that I know that assault is something that you've experienced. And you know, thanks for talking about that and sharing it because I do think it is something that Pullman doesn't. It's not even that he doesn't get it right. It's that it's the focus is wrong. Um, you shared with us about you know that kind of idea of the severing, and a lot of people when they talk about sexual assault. In sexual violence, they talk about this this moment of dissociation, right? That they are 
that they just sort of try to leave their bodies and pretend that it's not happening or they'll sometimes they'll pass out or or, or black out right just be, to not have to deal with it and that that's that's what's so frustrating about the way this scene is framed the entire scene the focus is on Malcolm's pain and his parting from Asta as you've pointed out there's a lot of language and detail put into that and how traumatic this is for him but none of it is focused on Alice's trauma at all like they come back and they return to the boat and like the rape is alluded to a little with Ben licking Alice and then Alice covering herself the shame that people feel but in this moment then like that's like a line right but the focus is on Malcolm and Asta comforting themselves after they reunite and apologizing and weeping to one another and we don't really get that same moment for Alice and I understand like that the story is written in like close third person narration with that focus on Malcolm's character but like that there's nothing there's nothing there right of whether Alice or Ben need to feel the need to apologize or or regret that they share within one another for letting it happen to either of them, even though it's a completely irrational thought, right? None of it is their fault. But there's a lot of guilt and self-blame that happens with sexual assault that isn't rational. And then there's no focus on her at all after this. The moment passes and into the next chapter, it's like none of it happened. Uh, Alice just keeps moving forward. And Malcolm doesn't ask how she is after that, after seeing the state that she's in. Maybe, I guess it's arguable, you know, one way to read the text is divorcing it from the author's intent and just working with what we have on page is that Malcolm's too young to understand what has happened to Alice, right? We've seen that he doesn't quite understand these things earlier on in the book, but also should we then be reading it as, is it Alice stealing herself and trying to move past it, bury that trauma and pain, and using Lyra as a sort of anchor to focus everything on, on her um, and going into a default mode so as to not have to deal with what happened. But because none of that's really addressed or, or brought forward in any way, and that it's left to the reader's imagination to do that, to do that heavy lifting of the narrative and of this girl character's pain, it, it, it's, it ends up that Alice's story, her salt, like that of many survivors, right? It, it's just ignored and written over. Mm-hmm. I agree with you guys 100%. And I can't speak to Chloe's experience. And again, thank you for sharing. But I will say reading The Amber Spyglass, the the separation between Pan and Lyra was the most hard hitting emotional uh, beat for me in that book. And I'm talking about bawling, crying like multiple times on multiple rereads. And just the fact that he, like you said, kind of use this assault to put the focus on Malcolm's pain, it actually diminished that whole part of it for me too. It's something, this a separation moment for me, I was like, okay, I know how I feel about this. This is going to break my heart. And, and it didn't even, it couldn't even do that because it's just so upsetting the way it, it all played out. So I, I, yeah, I hate this. It's really frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Justice for Alice. Yeah. I also wanted to add that, like, something else that's frustrating, right, is this book and his Dark Materials, again, both of them are sort of following these young characters during a moment in their lives, right, when they're going through puberty and getting to know their sexuality. And it happens very explicitly on page for Malcolm. Uh, We see it very prominently in the Amber Spyglass with uh, Lyra and Will, right, with that moment of dust. Malcolm 
is starting to, uh, for some reason, right, during this strange journey that he's been on, find that perhaps his hormones have started running, right? And part of it is, uh, I guess, because of his journey with Alice. And Alice's journey of sexuality is, is more complex, as it often is when society brands you a girl, right? And it's thrust upon her from the beginning of the story when she's um, assaulted uh, as well, sexually assaulted while working. She's sexually harassed. She's a teenager and someone gropes her. And she has to defend herself and stand up for herself in that way. It comes up again, of course, in her encounters with Bonneville earlier on in the book, right? And she, like many insecure girls, right? Like, latches on to that attention that Bonneville shows her. And then finds that, you know, this isn't, you know, thankfully she she figures out, she's like, this isn't what I wanted, this isn't right. But it, it's a very fraught and dangerous um, moments for her, her journey towards figuring out her sexuality. And then for it to happen here, like, Malcolm gets this sort of, like, cheerful awakening to his sexuality, whereas... Alice's ends up with a sexual assault. She's not. I don't. Wouldn't say that it's written like she's punished for having spoken to Bonneville. I think that's the most uncharitable reading of it. It, it. It's possible that is a that is one reading and interpretation that you could take from this. I don't think that it does read that way. Thankfully, right? She's not narratively punished for having dabbled with a, an older man who paid her compliments in a time when she wanted affection, but unfortunately, you know. She does, like, th this ends up happening to her, and also, like, I will say at the very least, it doesn't play into the narrative that assault and violence uh, happens from strangers, that it's often people that you know, I guess. But... Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, I think that it does a lot to inform Bon V's character, above all else, That's too. That's true. To make him very villainous, to make him this dark, horrible villain that has been slowly plotting how to use his power against the powerless throughout the entire story. And maybe that's a, a way to read it as well as far as how it affects his character and all of this. But it is frustrating because in the United States' version of La Belle Sauvage, Alice's age was changed from 15 to 16. Hmm. Alice is 15 in the UK version. Uh, and I think for me, like even story aside... That you set out with your one female character who has had to babysit mm -hmm. both an 11-year-old and an infant this entire ride on the trip. Malcolm does not change Lyra's diaper. Not once. He's 11, 12, whatever. I don't know. When I was a 16 or 15-year-old young woman, as we've discussed, it, it I, I can't tell you that I would ever listen to an 11-year-old boy and what he had to say. Even if he has, like, a black belt in karate and he's a super spy and whatever Malcolm is. But, like, I just, it's not believable. And then the idea that this scene happens, uh, it, I don't know, it's frustrating. It's frustrating because no matter how I spin it, it feels like Philip Pullman set out to rape his female protagonist of the story. From the very beginning that he wanted Bon V to end up sexually assaulting Alice as her big climax of her arc. Like, no matter how you spin it, Bon V was a predator and was preying on Alice the entire story. And no adults cared, because they're all too busy. Yeah. And... Yeah. Yeah. No adults cared, and... 
And at the end, right? No adults care either. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's also, you know, that is accurate, right? For, for many I agree. people's real life experiences. It's, yeah. I mean, there, there's many ways that, of course, this does reflect some experiences, but I just wish that it did as you do, right? Mm-hmm. Focus on the other side of the, those experiences, one that centers the survivor. It makes it feel like Alice was an accessory to the story. She was there to watch the baby. She was there to ask Malcolm, what are we going to do? And she was there to be the object of the predatory behavior from Gerard Bonvie. And therefore that women's Mm. pain, women's violence against women is an accessory in men's stories. Thank you. That's it. That's the book, everyone. I'm so glad. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry, (laughs) God. That's how it feels to me. And unfortunately, as we'll get to in the discussion, I'm sure uh, it's not the only feeling we have. Well, Deep breaths. You okay, now that Chloe? I'm done being mad at Phil for a hot second, you know, I feel like I now have the right to call him Phil. <laughs> Gonna be real honest with you. After that, no, this. Uh, let's let's row on in to the last, the last one, chapter twenty-five, a quiet road. Because the action's not over yet, everyone. The flood had peaked. The authorities had to spend all their pennies repairing and dealing with the devastation across southern England. The two sides, searching for the trio of Mal, Alice, and Lyra, make their way to the capital city, following rumors of the children in the canoe and the man with the three-legged hyena demon. George Papadimitru experienced the sense of strangeness and unreality the flood produced, traveling in a boat owned by Egyptian man, who provided him with Egyptian lore along the way. Today, the man tells him extreme weather and calm weather both have their very own states of mind. Ah, I love this. Uh, It's just like the alethiometer, right? In truth-telling and truth-seeking, the comparison of weather machines earlier on comes back to mind here, too, and how will they, won't they predict. The weather is dark matter? Eliana, weigh in on this? (laughs) Um, ah, I do see it. I do see it, though. It, it kind of is, in especially as you were saying, that states of mind and holding it. I love this quote that you pulled of, The Egyptian said, You think the weather is only out there? It's in here, too. And tapped his head. So do you mean that the weather's state of mind is just our state of mind? Nothing is just anything. The Egyptian replied, and would say no more. I think that this line probably means much more in the context of the secret commonwealth, but I do like this idea that the weather is also in your mind, that uh, your state is changeable, but it's like the conditions of the world, right? There's no difference between the inside and out. This is just what the world is. And it kind of reminds me of... Chloe, I finally caught up. I don't know if you watched the last season um, of the Magician's television series. I did. Um, finale which does work as a series finale even though it was meant as a season finale because the show got canceled but it does work and it does remind me of a mechanic that ends up happening there i i can't it's so funny you said that because i was thinking that and i'm trying to get my best friend dylan to read this series he still hasn't read it i haven't read it he loves the magicians i'm trying to get him to read his dark materials because he loves the magicians and has finished it 
And, you know, I do think this theme is much more reoccurring in The Secret Commonwealth. It comes up a lot more, a lot more frequently. However, I do think that it's introduced in La Belle Sauvage, especially Mm -hmm. with Malcolm saying, no, no, everything is always something. And kind of these thoughts back and forth with Hannah Ralph in the first quarter of the book. So I think it's being set up to really uh, continue being a prominent theme in the last book of Dust and hopefully have some meaning. It's funny that you the magicians came up and we're talking about this book because that was a book I borrowed and it was on my bookshelf during the flood and that copy got ruined and I never finished reading the book. Oh, (laughs) I read the first one. I haven't finished the rest, but I have read the first one. I I watched the first season and then I I fell off of it for some reason, even though I really enjoyed the show. I need to get back into it. I liked it. Yeah. I don't know if this thing that I'm talking about happens in the books or not because I haven't read the books and also... The television series, my understanding is, diverges no. very largely. It, it diverges quickly mm, yeah. and swiftly and hard. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So so I, I don't know. This might just be a show-only thing, but I like the show. Okay. Yeah, I love the show. I would recommend finishing it. We should definitely read the rest of these books, though, the Magician's books. I think you'd like them, Eliana. I've, I've heard so. George and the Egyptian Man speak to whoever they can find on the way getting information, most of which is wrong or a legend of sorts. They say that these children are like water ghasts or spirits, bad luck from the fairy world. Papa Dimitri accepts the nonsense in a very serious manner because the CCD would hear the same problems. The truthfulness isn't important in the rumors, but the reaction from the other side would be. Nugent and Bud Schlesinger were likely facing the same problem on their side of the water, but every hour they come closer to London. I thought that was so interesting that the rumors they're hearing, especially with these children coming from that fairy world and the rumors of them being on the water moving at night, the CCD now sees Malcolm, Alice, and Lyra as fairies and witches and supernatural, and more than that, as enemies. Hmm. It is super interesting, and I love the different stories of what people say that they saw on the water and how like it it does very much veer into the supernatural descriptions i'm just like but what if what if they literally did see that right what if that isn't just like them like being like in in the heat of the moment seeing something ridiculous but what if that is what they saw malcolm and alice as because i mean they really did sail through the fairy realm what if like they're just the way that they saw malcolm and alice through that like i don't know fairy field or whatever like distorted the way that they appeared to other people that's what the fairy food did they ate the fairy food (gasps) Yes! Yes! I like it. I like it. I mean, I think it has to at least give them some sort of special immortality-esque power going on. Something's gotta- I mean, there must be something. Something's afoot, is what I'm trying to Mm. say. And it's not just a culinary experience. (laughs) I don't know. It could be. Malcolm's also a foodie on top of Karate Master. That is true, he is, actually. Um... You know who doesn't grow up to be a foodie despite <laughs> tasting fairy oh food? God. Lyra. What's an omelette? Uh, um, eating fucking <laughs> egg shells and serving it to people. Hey, you gotta crack a few eggs. That's true. To put shells in your omelette. She does learn eventually. Well, across the water, another group is nearing London. Malcolm wakes up earlier than he likes to images of the night before. Alice and Lyra are still asleep, and he knows that he will wake them if he gets up. He peers out at the graveyard. It's even uglier in the daylight than it had been at night. And he feels sick. 
but it passes and he slowly entangles himself, putting Lyra down in the blanket softly and getting out of the canoe, holding Asta in his arms. He feels guilty, sad, shaken, and older, and he presses Asta's face into his neck. He thinks that maybe one day he would be able to talk to her about the pain, but now he was full of regret at hurting her. If it was like his, the pain she was feeling was so deep it seemed to inhabit every atom of her. We couldn't do anything else, she whispered. We had to. It's true, we did. Could he wash the blood away? Would the steps ever be clean again? His body quailed. That's a that's a rough line right there. It is. Would the steps ever be clean again? His body quailed. Ugh. PTSD. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's going great. It's going great. It's going great. <laughs> Alice calls for him, her face blurred with sleep and blood from the night before, and he softly moistens a towel in the grass to help clean her face. She climbs painfully out of the boat, holding Lyra, who needs a change badly. They're down to the last diaper, and her face is red, possibly sick with the cold. Malcolm and Alice both don't seem able to go much longer, but they know they have to get wood for Lyra. Malcolm reaches for the paddle to wash the blood off before he goes to find the wood, and the paddle is broken. The blade and the handle still held together, but only just. Any strain, the slightest push of against the water would break it off entirely. Malcolm turned it over in his hands, dismayed by beyond expression. So this reread of the story really got me. This is pretty intentionally a parallel to Will breaking the subtle knife, right? That's kind of what it feels like. Hmm. He looked at Mrs. Coulter. She had turned around silently, and the glare from the sky reflected off the damp cave wall, hit her face, and for a moment, it wasn't her face at all. It was his own mother's face reproaching him, and his heart quailed from sorrow. And then, as he thrust with the knife, his mind left the point, and with a wrench and a crack, the knife fell in pieces to the ground. It was broken. Now he couldn't cut his way out at all. Yorick even needs them to bring him wood covered in resin oh. to fix it, which reminds me of Malcolm using resin to fix Lavelle Sauvage. Interesting. We haven't quite gotten there yet, but uh, when we start the Amber Spyglass, this is something we'll definitely come back to. It's a really big trope, though, right? Uh, it's part of the hero's journey. I'm actually rewatching Heroes, the TV show right oh now. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it's one of my favorite TV shows of all time. I don't care. Season two was fine. And if you want to argue with me about it, you can email us at girlsgonecanon oh at gmail.com. Uh, but season two was fine. Um, anyways, I'm rewatching Heroes. And uh, one of the main characters, Hero, he his sword breaks in an episode. No spoilers. And he says... He's very disappointed about it, and he says, even if the sword is sharp, I am not fit to wield it. Malcolm and the oar has a lot of that hero's journey. He wielded his oar to protect him, Alice, and Lyra. This oar was used to kill Bon V, and it's something that Malcolm would never want to do, right? Take a life. Even if the sword is sharp, he is not fit to wield it in that way. And uh, that's got to be weighing on him right now pretty heavily as he tries to wade through the water with his broken oar. That's a great comparison. I did not, I didn't even think about that and and that catch with using the resin. Yeah, I didn't, I was curious about it and I was rereading it when Yorick asked for, he wanted wood covered in resin from the woods specifically. And I was like, wait a second, resin? <sighs> really resonates. They could use some blood moss though right now. God damn it, Eliana. <laughs> 
Yeah, they could use a blood mask right now. For real. Well, Malcolm is exhausted, and at his limit. He's nearly in tears. And Alice asks if, well, Malcolm, can you just, like, mend the ore? And he's like, yeah, but we need tools and a workshop. And Alice tries to calm him, reminding him that no matter what, they need to start a fire. And he looks to tiny, listless Lyra for motivation to continue on. He tells Alice, don't touch the broken ore in case they can mend it before it breaks further. And he goes back to the mausoleum, looking to steal another fence post and coffin lid, apologizing to another skeleton. Once the saucepan is heating at the end of their clean water, Malcolm goes to work to mend the ore. He needed something to bind it to, and he finds rusty wire in the fence posts. It was all he had, and although difficult to work with, and his hands end up cut up and scraped after with the blood-red rust. After Malcolm rinses his hands, they both note that the water is finally going down, and they push off back into the flood under the gray sky. The land they pass becomes more urban, and the paddle feels weak, but at least the current is taking them rather quickly, and he uses it mainly to steer. Alice and Malcolm are both aware that Lyra is not in a good state, and they stare intently at the shops until they find a few that they can ask for help from. They make it to a one, where a gentleman is inside, and they hold up Lyra, tapping on the glass and hoping for his help. The man guides them to the back of the story, where the water inside the shop is the same height as the water outside the shop, up to Malcolm's thighs. They tie off to a drain pipe, and he asks Alice to come with him inside to get the stuff they need, hoping the products are all on the high shelves. They need medicine, milk powder, diapers, and the shopkeep starts to question them, seeming a little bit twitchy. He gives them what they need with a fake cheerfulness. He mentions in passing he doesn't know how the shop's going to recover from all this as product is floating by them in the water. Malcolm gives Lyra a little medicine while trying to whisper to Alice that there's another person present besides the shopkeep. Alice whispers back she saw the other person. It's a woman who's keeping out of sight. Lyra complains when they give her medicine, but she eventually takes it. Alice watches the people through the reflections in the glass. The woman leaves the store and Alice swears under her breath, saying, Bastards! They know they have to move fast. The shopkeep returns with diapers and Malcolm asks if he can take a roll of adhesive tape to go. He thanks the man, who says he'll go next door and find them a little food, too. In fact, the man becomes very friendly and extends them the comfort of his home, saying, Oh, please, you should go rest. But Malcolm's like, No, no, thank you. We must go, sir. They make their way to the canoe, pushing off right away, and Alice quietly says the woman was going to the police, or to the CCD, or someone in the authority. Once they're in the clear, Malcolm fixes the oar with adhesive tape and removes the wire. It doesn't seem like it's going to hold very long, but they hope they don't have much further to go. Haha, <laughs> they hope, bitch. He says as much to Alice, who's like, we'll see. So I will say, I think that this is a great scene that shows how ingrained the CDC is, right? We, we had something similar to the scene, but where they loot the store a few chapters ago. And whereas the, the beginning of the book, right, follows the League of St. Alexander, it shows just how ubiquitous the CDC is, right? Uh, especially having children acting as spies. Between, you know, His Dark Materials and the Books of Dust series, we see a lot of really overtly malicious CDC people. Like, we're literally going to see, like, children getting shot in a second. Also, we've seen children getting torn apart, you know, they're severed from their demons. But these people here, they aren't part of the CDC. Yeah, they're acting like a little sketchy and like someone's going to go to the authorities or the police, right? But I feel like 
the way that they're portrayed, they feel to me more like almost like Sister Fenella, right? They're just people that really trust in the system that they don't realize does not have their best interests at heart. I don't think that they're really trying to trap Malcolm or Alice. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But to me, they seem like a really generous couple who suddenly sees like these two tired, bedraggled children. Maybe they've been told, hey, keep an eye out for these kids. And have been told that in reporting about them, right, they think that they're taking these children to authorities who will help them, right? But turns out the authority, this time with a capital A, based on that other series that this is a spinoff of, um, will not help. <laughs> It is kind of sad. It's like very realistic. Yeah. Uh, I mean, resources are always misallocated and the children that need help never get the help they need while the authorities go after things that are probably lesser priority wise or resource wise that they don't need quite as much resources. And it's it's really sad because that's how families get broken up and how families, mm -hmm. you know, don't get the help they need. Yeah. Fuck the authority. Oh my God. All my homies hate the authority. <laughs> All of them. I guess speaking from personal experience in these flood type situations, like you, you can't just wait for anybody like to come help you. You have to rely mm -hmm. on your community. And that's definitely something that I've seen time and time again, not just with that flood I experienced, but with the dozen or so hurricanes I've experienced in my lifetime too. People really have to rely on each other and you it's your neighbors really can come and help you and save you and give you those things you need and yeah it's uh that's that's what this reminds me of right now it's just you don't have anybody else except whoever is around you at that moment to help you yeah nice of these couple but yeah maybe Ill not quite their priorities are not quite all there yeah i mean why are you giving them all this stuff to help them and then calling the authorities on them, fam? I mean, I think that yeah. they think they're helping, you know? But. Exactly, but it's ill-guided. Yeah, bummer. Well, they get away in time, though, which is surprising, right? Like, mm -hmm. that they, like, just immediately get away. I think that they, like, take off and there's no... I mean, maybe that call is what gets the authorities to catch up with them, though. So never oh. mind. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's what we're supposed to take from this cut, right? Because oh. it turns into an action movie again. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. We head back to an overview of the flood and the water level rose and fell all the way upriver as far as Teddington. But now the flood has changed things. The tide comes in twice a day and all the boating except urgent boating had been stopped for that time being... Many barges and lighters have been torn loose or swept down the river to slam into the banks or capsizing lost in sea. Bridges were shaken badly, many collapsed, and few still standing. Our, our friend Bud S. rode the wild water, trying to calm the fears of the boat's owner. The owner yells out that there's been too much debris and their hull will be smashed, but Bud asks how much further to Chelsea. <laughs> the boat owner hopes to tie off now and avoid, you know dying in the flood, but Bud pushes them on to aim for the West Bank. They plunge on, and he asks if the man has heard of October House, about to point out some sightseeing as they go, but suddenly, on starboard, a large navy blue and ochre ship had surged, crowing them. I love Bud Schlesinger. What an opposite, right? Because he... He's out here like, wahoo! We're on the water! We're going crazy! And George Papa Dimitri was like, 
very demure, minding what the Egyptian man is telling him. Like, ah, yes, this all makes sense. And Bud Schlesinger's out there like, yeah, let's ride it again. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it so much. (laughs) I'm sorry. This reminds me of another flood story. of uh, So in my parents' neighborhood, um, my parents' house is in the lowest part. So they flooded first and the worst. And uh, they came up the street to a friend's house, uh, but it started to flood here too. Anyway, long story short, anybody that had a boat was just helping rescue people. And my dad got taken out of the neighborhood on a boat and they crossed our yard to get to like the main road to go to higher ground. And my dad is just like, he, he took a video and on the video, you can hear him say as they're crossing our yard, I mow this, I mow all of this. <laughs> like he mows the grass. It's like, I take care of all of this. And this... <laughs> It just reminded me of my dad being like, yeah, hey, what's look at this. This is mine. I don't know. I'm sorry. That's so silly. I love it. I love it. Flood memes. Hashtag. Poor Mm -hmm. Holly. I know. So many. Those must have been like, I don't know. Does does the grass grow back even like more? Or is it like drowned? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Did he have to mow all that grass later? So, he yeah, he did. I think they brought in these really weird bugs, too, that normally aren't around. And so once the, like, the floodwaters died down, then everybody's grass turned, like, yellow. And I can't remember the type of bugs they were. Oh. But it was everywhere. Like, uh, like uh, the water brought in some crazy bugs that, like, nested and killed a lot of grass. But it's, you know, it's all back to normal now-ish. Well, Ish. Damn. Uh, as normal as the impending doom of the earth can go yeah the drainage issues that cause a lot of the flooding have not been fixed so we just live in constant fear all the time uh so yeah exciting thank, uh, thank you for coming to my flood talk yeah. <laughs> your flood talk <laughs> fuck uh well Budge Schlesinger and the owner of the boat hang on for dear life because they are almost knocked down, and a deckhand leans out, trying to knock Budge Schlesinger down from his surfing man pose. He draws his pistol, shooting at the boat, hitting its hook and knocking it out of this deckhand's hand. The boat surges ahead, but meets an obstruction in the water and goes up. The engine screams and the boat wallows in the water behind them. The captain of Bud's boat is like, what the fuck? Who is that? And Bud's like, that's a CCD, so we better get to that there October house before they do. They throttle forward, and Bud looks around at the shapes in the water. It's impossible to tell if any of them happen to be a canoe with a boy, a girl, and a baby, just so you know. I don't think he's looking that hard, but it is impossible to tell. Downstream, Lord Nugent's boat slams into the lawn of October house. The October house is a great classic white building with a huge lawn and i love that we're once more introduced to this like avalon style beautiful place right this beautiful place that's uh the white house on the hill also with that the maze and the island earlier right that long Hmm. sweeping lawn has been such a common thing that the kids are trying to get to yeah there's nowhere to tie off and nugent gets out all the same he just starts wading through the water to the giant boathouse He has eyes only for one man on the deck with a welding torch. He calls out to him, it's Asriel. With no time to spare, Lord Nugent asks if the boat is ready to go on the water because Asriel needs to go save his daughter. Meanwhile, La Belle Sauvage is moving swiftly down the water to London and the tide is near its height. 
They're getting slammed, left and right, and Malcolm keeps balance the best he can, but there's definitely no stopping. He hears a creak, as if La Belle Sauvage's framework was giving way, and a wind starts to blow, lashing cold water at them and moving them under the gray sky. The creak grows louder in the wind, and Alice begins to worry as well, but they have to keep going! Just keep swimming, but don't be swimming because it's a flood. Every time they see somewhere they could make a shelter, they try to turn, but the flow of the water is too much. Alice holds Lyra tight, and Mal feels a surge of love and regret for bringing these two girls into this whole thing. But he can't dwell on that right now because a new noise has arrived. It's a siren. It shrieks behind them, and the clangor of bells begins to come from ahead and brings more new noises. The roaring of an engine, wood being pushed together and human cries. A massive blow comes from behind, and it seems that there's a powerboat on their trail, slamming into them continually. It is, of course, a CCD boat trying to push the canoe sideways, but La Belle Sauvage hangs on somehow for dear life, staying upright while Malcolm fights to dig the broken paddle into the water and get them out of it, because it is, yes, that kind of siren with bad evil people boats, but I would not blame any of you for thinking it was the other kind of sirens based on all the other crazy shit that we've seen in this story. <laughs> Broken glass. Shouts of anger. Everything is impossible to hear as another powerboat joins the mess. There's a lot. There's a lot of boats going on. He's really asking a lot of us right now. I'm just putting that out there. This is a lot. This is sensory overload, Philip. Oh, so many fucking boats. Um, Too many boats in the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> well... Malcolm and Alice can see nothing during this time. Same, just boats and boats, and they even hear a gunshot amongst the other loud noises. Suddenly cold water begins to gush in, and nothing will stop it. But thankfully, Lord Asriel appears, roaring, pass her up to me, and Malcolm agrees and is trying to tell Alice, yo, that's him, that's him, pass the baby up to him. And... So they do. They hoist Alice up also. Ben is clinging to her waist as a little monkey. And the first no. boat smashes into the canoe again, a death blow. And the brave little boat breaks open like an egg. <laughs> oh, you gotta feel sad about that. I do feel sad. <sighs> it's it's like the the real death of a character in, in this book. Like that's that's Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the boat is just like falling apart in the water. And Asriel finally roars at Malcolm, and Malcolm's about to Titanic it, right? He's like, no, I'll just go down with the ship. And Asriel's like, now you, boy. And he shoves the rucksack up first. And Alice agrees. Alice is like, take it to Asriel. And then Malcolm stands in the canoe with Asta coiled as a snake, important mm. snake for knowledge, around his leg. And an iron hand scoops him up in the other boat, falling onto the wooden deck. Yeah, Asriel's like, shut he the fuck up, Dido. Yeah, right. <laughs> he stared down with rain-lashed, tear-filled eyes as the little Belle Sauvage smashed a matchwood, died and was borne away forever. Nothing then but the noise and the plunging, thumping, swinging of the powerboat on the wild water. What a death. That was the goddamn little boat that could. I, I honestly was very sad and disappointed we don't hear about Malcolm immediately trying to resurrect La Belle Sauvage in the end of the book. Obviously, the time jump here doesn't allow for that, and no spoilers for the next book, but I guess that time jump doesn't allow for it either. 
I mean, the first thing I would have done is make a new boat. I'm going to be honest. Or put that one together. I don't know. I would make a new LaBelle Sauvage. But it was his demon, right? Like, LaBelle Sauvage is his other demon. Yeah, it's like his the other stick. vessel. Like, like Stick yeah. Stickly or Plank. This is Stick Stickly. <laughs> Smash. And now here it is. Exactly. Smashed to wooden pieces. Nothing more than a, a skeleton in a box, you know? Nothing more than a wooden coffin he destroyed in a mausoleum. Yeah. It's kind of, what, is this supposed to be like his Hedwig? I don't know. His childhood. Yeah, this is Hedwig. And the innocence. I, I also think like, you know, to some extent that first LaBelle Sauvage, right? It got it spruced up by Asriel. How much of it was the original, right, boat? You know, that, that famous paradox. But I'm also uh, like- Theseus, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, couldn't, couldn't. Azrael sponsor a new boat? boat. I mean, this did he did like save your daughter, and he went through all of this, brought your kid to you. I'm like Azrael, you're good for it, right? Like, get this kid another boat. Is he? Uh, he's got business <laughs> okay, in the north. Maybe, apparently. maybe not him, but Papa Demetriou, like Bud Schlesinger. Yeah. One of them can afford to Nugent, get this boy. Yeah. Yeah, someone, someone. Nugent can... was gonna sell him off to like a child True. molester. So how True. about Nugent buys him a fucking new boat? Jesus Christ, he owes him. Yeah, I, no, absolutely, him. absolutely. My copy of the book has another beautiful illustration of the boat kind of breaking apart. It's just like a, a hole in the side. I'm gonna Aww. hold it up. For Why does your book see, only but... have hurtful illustrations? I don't know. <laughs> it's a really pretty book, though. It is interesting that it's like implied the gunshot breaks the boat, but oh. also breaks Malcolm, right? Wow. Like, it oh. it penetrates the boat and it won't stop gushing in water. And then it also, Malcolm gets shot, so. Malcolm and Alice cling together, Lyra between them, their demons clinging together, too. And the movement stills, the engine falls silent, and a wave of exhaustion falls over them. Asriel decides this is the moment he's going to yell at Malcolm for saving his daughter, and he demands to know, What the hell do you think you were playing at, Malcolm? And Malcolm intends to answer this, but he is very out of strength, so Alice answers instead, which, realistically, you probably don't want Alice to answer instead of Malcolm, is what I think. Playing? You think we were playing? This was Mal's idea. He said we'd bring Lyra to you and keep her safe because, by God, there was nowhere else she'd be safe. I was against it because I thought it was impossible, but he was stronger than me. And if he says he'll do something, he'll bloody do it. You don't know nothing about him to ask a stupid question like that. Playing? You dare even think that? If I told you half of what he's done to keep us alive and safe, well, you wouldn't imagine it could be true. You couldn't dream of it. Whatever Mal says, I believe. So take that fucking smile off your face, you. Yeah. Addendum to that in the audio version, she drops the F-bomb twice. Um, Wow. So instead of saying, uh, and if he says he'll do something, he'll fucking do it. And I was just like, (laughs) yes. (laughs) It's awesome. Uh, I love that. You don't hear it too much in this book, but, but hearing it twice. And I did a weird thing where I was like, I don't normally do this, but just to kind of triple absorb everything to prep was i was following along and listening and and so i was able to catch some of these differences i was like oh i must be listening to the uk version of this novel and reading the american version or i don't vice versa i don't i don't know 
But I liked it. I wish that was in the written text that I have. Yeah, I didn't know that it was two F-bombs. I prefer that. The audio version is great now. I, I stand. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. I mean, this is this is my kink. You know, uh, Alice Parslow telling off Azriel Balakwa. I, I am a noted hater, right? Uh, unfortunately, of Azriel, he just pisses me off. You know, I don't care how big it is, Azriel. It's not that good. It's not good <laughs> enough to wreck like worlds and shit. Okay. Mm-hmm. It might be good enough for Marisa, but not for me. <laughs> not for the environment. I agree. I agree. But you know, Marisa, I don't know. She didn't have the best taste. Maybe in clothes. No. <laughs> We've all made mistakes, Marisa. <laughs> well, after this wonderful scene, we move to Malcolm, who's barely conscious now. He thinks he's dreaming, but sees an almost amused expression on Lord Azriel's face at Alice's ferocious dragging. Malcolm finds the energy to drag himself to his feet and explain himself and his goals for Lyra. Scholastic Sanctuary. He had wanted to get Lyra to Jordan, but the flood was too strong. And also, he didn't know the Latin words. So they hoped that they could at least get her to Asriel, and he'd take care of it. So Mal holds out the business card Lord Asriel had given him, and is like, I'm so glad we could finally network in person. And Lyra cries behind him passionately. He tries to hold himself together, but then he passes out. But just before he passing out, he hears someone say, The boy's bleeding! He's been shot! Glad that he got to know what happened to him before he passed out. Malcolm wakes up in a different place. It's small, hot, and close to the engine. He's in a gyropter, and his arm is blazing with pain. Alice is squeezing his hand, but immediately looks for Lyra. She's wrapped up tightly, fast asleep, pan around her neck as a little green snack, and Asta lies cat-shaped in his lap, and he tries to pet her, but his arm throbs even harder at that. You know, I do have to say... You'd think that since they're in a gyropter, they're urgently heading towards a hospital for this kid who's been shot, right? That's what we're all thinking, right? No, that's not where they're going. They're going to college. (laughs) You would think that. You would think that. Well, they they probably have. Is anyone studying? Like, is anyone in med school, right, at this college? I'm sure they have some sort of medical attention that he's never brought up in any of these novels. But it just kills me that, well, it's killing Malcolm, too. Yeah. Uh, is anyone going to take care of this kid who's, like, 12 years old and has been shot? Give Malcolm a boat. Give Malcolm medical attention. Free healthcare. Give Malcolm universal healthcare. For real. <sighs> well, when he comes to, Asta's like, we're in a gyropter. <laughs> Asriel's flying us. And the rucksack is by his legs. He feels his arm very delicately, and he feels a bandage, and Alice is like, well, you've been shot, and she adjusts the way he's laying so he doesn't hurt his neck as he just goes right back to sleep again. Over the thud of the engines, Alice hears Asriel shouting over to her, and she can't hear him, so she puts on these earphones which connect to the microphone, and he tells her to listen carefully. He's going away, and he wants Lyra to be found safe when he comes back. The best way to ensure her safety is to stay inconspicuous, quiet, and for them to go back to the trout with Malcolm, take up their normal life, and tell no one but the Master of Jordan about this. He tells her the Master's a good man, and that she can trust him. Well, that's good, because that's, like, you know... I trust the Master of Jordan with my life. Yep. I actually (laughs) was rereading this is great. 
Yeah, I trust him entirely. Same. And I mean, he tries to poison him later. That's so crazy. That's how much he, yeah, like, that's intense. Trying to poison someone, like, your own parent to protect you. I trust the Master of Jordan. Well, the CCD is going to be watching all of them very closely, and they'll need to stay away from Lyra until it blows over. Asriel had wanted to take Lyra with him to the north, where obviously there's a lot more danger going on, uh, but she'd already found two very good guardians. They descend, Ben in greyhound form licking Pan's serpent head, and Alice holding Malcolm's hand. The aircraft settles to the ground, Asriel commands his servant, Thorold, we know Thorold, to guard the machine, and he tells the children to bring Lyra and the rucksack and follow him. Alice scoops up Lyra, Malcolm hauls the rucksack, and they make their way into Radcliffe Square in Oxford. They follow him into a large garden with buildings on both sides, and they follow a stone passage, and Asriel takes Lyra from them. Stelmaria, his demon, wants to see Lyra, and while watching them, Malcolm gets an idea. Asriel confirms they're at Jordan, and Malcolm ignores his pain in his arm to rummage in the rucksack for an alethiometer. He says it's a present for Lyra, thrusting it among her blankets. The door opens, bolts unlocking, key turning, and the master, a distinguished-looking man, peers out at them in astonishment, shuttling them into the college quickly as Asriel puts Lyra in his arms before he can protest. Asriel gives the master the Latin words Malcolm doesn't know. We're going to give this the best shot we can. Um, college try. The yeah, Jordan the best try. college, Jordan college try. Secundum legem de refugio scholasticorum protectionem tegimentumque vius collegi profilia mea lyra nomine reposco. Azrael said, look after her. <laughs> It's pretty good. I can't argue with that. That that got me. I mean, I can't argue with it time. either because I don't know what I'm arguing against. I don't know what I said. <laughs> <laughs> well, the master wants to argue. So, someone on Reddit, Havoc98, gave a pretty good their own college try at it and said that this this uh, translation comes to according to the law of scholastic refuge i claim the protection and coverage of this college in the name of slash on behalf of my daughter lyra i almost liked him just for a moment again he's got some moments i guess in this book but yeah a couple a couple this is, yeah, this is Asriel at his best, for sure. Yeah. Um, just, just, just this. I mean, it's that, and also, but at the same time, it's like, what, so everyone thought you were just, like, so untrustworthy of a father that no one was like, oh, I brought your kid to you so you could take care of her? They're like, no, I brought your kid to you so you could put her, like, in school so someone else could take care of her? I mean, obviously, that was the loophole, right? That The loophole is yeah. that Asriel, like, if Lyra were in his care, wouldn't be able to hold on to her. But I'm just like... Yeah, I mean, like, at the same time, isn't he just handing her over so he can go do his master plans in the north? Which eventually yep. lead to peace, kind of. Through some murder. Yeah, all you have to do is, like, you know, murder your daughter's friend Best once. Best friend. Best friend once, whatever. 
Who cares? Wait a second. Are you saying a parslow suffering for... Never mind. Sorry. Mm. Oh, I said it. You know, they're cousins, y'all. I'm just saying. Alice and Roger are cousins. I'm sad. Sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm a bad person and I feel really bad about it. The master argues right away with Asriel. He's like, she's not a scholar. And Asriel's like, well, your turn. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) I tried being a dad for a month. It didn't work out. Good luck, master. Yeah, Asriel's like, I'm not paying child support. (laughs) Uh, She's yours now. (laughs) Asriel looks to Malcolm and Lyra and tells the master to treasure them. Bloody, shivering, disgusting, exhausted. Treasure them. I love this line, and this is the last part of Asriel that being Asriel that I like, but treasure them. Uh, that's just a nice thing to say. Mm-hmm. And then the master absolutely does treasure them. Well, I guess we maybe not Alice so much with her job, but, you know, she's taken care of for the most part up, up until he's, he dies. And am I allowed to be upset that they weren't included in the opening of HBO's His Dark Materials in the first scene? I mean... I get why they weren't included, but it is disappointing. I was really disappointed. Um, I was. I mean, I get it. I totally get it. And, you know, I guess we'll talk about this more in discussion, but Alice was technically included, no spoilers, at one point in the show, but got cut in uh, lieu of another character, but it, it was a bummer. You could have just shown a little ginger kid and a little scowling girl. I mean. Yeah. And I guess another difference here from the show to this is uh, the master doesn't seem to be answering the door in, like, chest-high water to accept Mm. this baby like he is in the show. It's kind of weird. So, You know, to be fair, though, like, that was written before the book was even published, right? So they had to get that from Pullman, and he actually, like, let them have the information to put that in. was it? Yep. It was. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm, it was right before, like, they had to get the okay on it and put it in. Oh, I guess so. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. I remember hearing that they were going to do the show back in, like, 2015 mm-hmm. and being super excited. Uh, and the book didn't come out until 2017. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, I don't know, too. I don't know how much they knew necessarily. Like, if they knew Malcolm and Alice were a thing at that point. I mean, they probably knew that was going to be the focus of his book, of those characters. But it didn't, I guess it doesn't make sense to bring them in. Let's be real. Yeah, and even if you did, you cast them with maybe the intent of um, adapting these books later, you would not be able to use the same kids. Um, it would be very... Because they would grow. It would be very X-Men. You know what I mean? Like how uh, all yeah. none of the X-Men have... Uh, all the, the different X-Men franchises, none of them really have that arc that connect them at all. It would be a little... That's true. I guess it could be off, but it, it's not awful. But it would be I would have been fine with it. Because Lord Asriel is in X-Men and in this television series. Oh my god, Eliana. <laughs> I'm about to be an ex-girl gone canon if you keep it up. Oh, Fuck. <laughs> That's great. All right, Asriel leaves. He leaves Malcolm to pass out on the Turkish carpet, right? LMAO. Straight up, this book ends and Malcolm passes out from, you know, like loss of blood on the carpet in Jordan. And Alice catches him. And in the silence, baby Lyra begins to cry. And that's literally the end. Malcolm passes out from his fucking gun wound. And we do close with Edmund Spencer, the fairy queen. Now strike your sails, ye jolly mariners. For we be come into a quiet road, 
where we must land some of our passengers and light this weary vessel of her load. Here she a while may make her safe abode, till she repaired have her tackles spent, and wants supplied, and then again abroad, on the long voyage whereto she is bent. Well, may she speed and fairly finish her intent. And of course, it says, to be continued. Just catching this as you read that last bit, in the silence, Lyra begins to cry. That's how the book ends, and it's like Lyra saying chronologically in the story it's my turn now attention on me please next three books are about me interesting huh i love that yeah it's her book now it's her story pass it over to lyra and it is good they should they should be passing that mic yeah yeah indeed cool i want to say we brought this up a couple episodes ago but now that we're here i just have to highlight again lyra remembers there being gunshots in her childhood story and horseback and all this. And uh, it turns out she wasn't so crazy after all. There was gunshot, there was craziness, Wild Westness going on in her childhood story. I thought that was really a fun thing that he turned around on its head, you know, that she had all this idea of swords and swashbuckling. And it turns out, um, yeah, your origin story is pretty swashbuckling, kid. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of action, a lot of boats. Maybe not a lot of swords crashing, but boats crashing into one another. Boats and guns. That's very piratey. Yeah. Yeah. Is this a uh... so yeah, the Fairy Queen. I love how this ending passage, right? Very much, of course, is uh it feels like a eulogy for La Belle Sauvage, the little boat. Yeah. It is. It is a nice little eulogy. I mean, fare ye well, Mariner. Uh and again, as you kind of outlined, it's a goodbye to childhood. Mm, that's true. It to is the child that. he was. It is also that. I wonder if like there's more to it, though, right? We did see a fairy queen in this, and, and Lyra has been eating some fairy food. It opens, you know, with a small segment of a poem as well. And I was trying to do some reading on both of the poems and just like, Think about the different themes as they come up and the final themes of the story, right, of of the end of the story. And I'm not sure. I think it really does dovetail nicely into the secret commonwealth. Mm-hmm. As we get into the discussion in a minute, we'll talk about that, I guess. But, but the secret commonwealth, uh, I feel like this story has much more of the magical, fantastical elements in it than the secret commonwealth, which has a bit more of the political elements, in my opinion, going on. Still some fantastical elements, but definitely political elements, too, that are much stronger and not through an 11-year-old's eyes. And I think that is an interesting way that this poem takes us to the next story. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, I like the trilogy title being The Book of Dust, but I almost think it maybe should be The Secret Commonwealth. And then if these themes are going to at least continue through the third book, too, you know, it yeah, almost seems like it works better. Hmm. I'm t- that third one's gonna have some sort of rose title, right? It's gotta mm. have some sort mm. of something. Something to do with the roses. I'm on to you, roses. Well, before we get to the third book, which isn't even there yet, we're waiting, Phil. Keep writing, please. Uh, what, do you, what do you think your final thoughts were on La Belle Sauvage, ladies? What Overall, overall, how do you feel about the story? 
I like it the best so far in this new trilogy. Like I said, it, it's triggered a lot of things for me emotionally, I've, just due to my own experiences. I think the the mystical supernatural stuff is fun, but also a few times it was con- like my first time through it was really confusing and jarring, and I'm like, what's happening? What's real? What isn't real? I have no idea what's going on. Uh, I had no knowledge of the a lot of the mythology that a lot of these things are based on. So, um, but it was it's an adventure, and it was super fun the first time through, just kind of coming back to this world after so so many years and. Yeah, I I like it. I like it a lot, except for the parts I don't like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, Yeah, same. I like it a lot, except for the parts I don't like. It's a lot of different (laughs) things, right? It's an interesting structure to go with for a story. It's not a very traditional structure, I think, right? In terms of how it works, right? It starts off very slow and does some of that world building again. And I love the the beginning where you kind of get those little scenes of this sort of childhood of malcolm's and then it it as it does asks our young heroes to go on this journey and then you just hop from like island to island and it's like sort of meandering story until you get here to the end and it's very much it feels like an interesting like deepening of that origin story for lyra how did she get to be where she was and it's a fun thought exercise turned into a book and as you said, I don't really know all of the things that inform some of the the legends and stories, but I, I like that the book has encouraged me to learn more about those those myths, those legends and folktales, etc. That's a really good point. I also want to say I like how baby Lyra is just very true to the Lyra we know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just some of her just little things they say about her. I'm like, oh yeah, that's that girl's not going to change very much as she grows up. Like she already, I feel like she already is who she is as a baby, you know? Yeah. Like when they go through the dam or through the waters and she laughs and they're like, really? We almost died. (laughs) You laugh. Okay. This is the shit. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Or like when they put her in that produce box, when they take her back from the CCD church. (laughs) I mean, people just love putting Lyra in boxes, right? Yeah. Oh my, my god. <laughs> Call Marisa. Oh god. <laughs> it's foreshadowing. It's not. You make a good point in the idea of like the expansion of lore and that it encourages you to learn more about the lore that he's making references to, whether you know what it is or not, or encourages you to research, right? Because Pullman loves storytelling and it brings back that line, that beautiful Mary Malone plot thought of tell them stories, right? Make words, mm-hmm. tell them stories. Because that's ultimately what he wants. He wants people to research those fairy tales and research those stories and keep those stories alive, uh, which is kind of that common theme of this secret commonwealth and these magical creatures of keeping their stories alive. I will say in regards to keeping their stories alive, some of it is unfamiliar to us, right? All three of us are American. And (laughs) I get the sense that like some of these might have been part of a more, I don't know, British childhood, right? Some people are, Mm -hmm. especially because, you know, maybe their friends tell them or their parents, families pass down those stories to them. And also, I wonder if, and I'm sure it does, right? This story feels different if you grew up in in Britain, right? If you got Mm -hmm. to experience Oxford, right? There's all these things, right? The, the, The references to the Thames River, right? 
Um, of course, we know it, like, have, like, seen it, but it doesn't have that same, I think, sense of, like, cultural weight mm -hmm. that it would for, for yeah. um, people who lived and for whom, like, a society grew around it, right? Yeah. So I've I've heard I've heard that like Oxford is a very interesting, like place that um is so, like the architecture and like the way that it looks is just so fantastical that like of course someone would write a story about growing up there. So yeah, I think that ultimately like it was a really great story with gorgeous prose, a distinct supernatural lore overtone and, and that pain of being an earth-minded child stuck in a changing modern world a fast-moving world mm. i think those were really great plot beats and and those themes of disparity we even get to explore in the beginning right at the trout with malcolm and his family mm -hmm. uh and class and how he's not going to be able to go to secondary school with all of these kids that have families that are able to do that I really loved that. I loved that ground building and kind of his life at the inn. I do agree it gets a little meandery in that second half, like you said. And, I mean, it's a great story that ultimately falls flat when Philip tries to prove he's not a youth fiction writer anymore. It's good when it's effortless, and the story mm -hmm. is really nice and flowing when it's effortless, but I can just tell when he decides to put so much effort in to prove something and to prove that, you know, this is a edgy adult fiction piece it's overall good heart-wretching suspenseful uh, a letdown in some aspects we've discussed already and aspects we can discuss later but i, I liked it i like it overall I, I think i liked it better the third reread this was my third reread and i think i liked it best the third reread as far mm -hmm. as plot comprehension and seeing some of those themes and stories and lines fall together but I liked it less on the third reread for some of those beats that I mentioned making it fail for me, so. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think we could we could sail away, right? Leave this behind us for a little. Talk oh about God. another shore. Um, and by that we mean the discussion. Right. And if you have not yet read The Secret Commonwealth or would like to avoid spoilers from it, please tune out now. All right. Here's another point in which you can hop off on this journey. Tune out now. And again, we will see you in the Amber Spyglass or if you ever come and revisit these episodes. But now we are going to enter our discussion where we do talk about The Secret Commonwealth. Look, having this as framework for the secret commonwealth, knowing that Malcolm has basically trauma bonded to Renezme. Oh my right? god. I mean Lyra. Well, you really put that in there. <laughs> is this does that not make this weirder? Like I feel weirder about Malcolm and his feelings for Lyra now than I did two months ago, is what I'm trying to say. And I felt really weird about it two months ago, but now I'm like Cool, so you guys had this big, traumatic, weird experience together when Lyra was an infant and you were 11, 12 and just coming, uh, you know, of age and understanding how your dick works. And now you're in love with Lyra, who was your student, also. I, I personally, me, um, without any... I, I guess I could say without any, like, 
I don't, I hate even like classifying it that way, but like daddy issues. I've kind of always been attracted to men that are older, but it is definitely not men that I knew in my childhood who were that much older than me. And I, that's, that's where it's weird for me. Like, I don't think the age difference is so bad on its own Mm -hmm. at a certain age. I think everybody's adults. It's fine. But yeah, him knowing her as a baby and then later teaching her in school and then later having an attraction for her is, is weird. Don't, don't love it. It's just weird to me now that like they went through this whole experience. I don't know. And now you're just sticking around for a couple decades to see how she turns out. It's like, yeah, I mean, like, I, I could look it over. I could look over this thing if it weren't for the teacher. For the yeah, part where he the taught teacher. her. Mm. I, as, as you said, I don't think that the age difference is that, like, you know, 20 slash 21 and 30 slash 31. I don't think it's, like, I raise my eyebrows a little bit. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not like, jarring, you know? Right. Like, yeah. Right, right. Whatever. It's, it's the power and balance of a student-teacher relationship that really, I think, gets at me. And... Yeah, and then plus all of this, right? Like, at first I was like, all right, maybe fine. Maybe I'll just, like, shove it down in the back of my mind again. And then, you know, as you brought up, Chloe, when you brought up the the comparison, and I had, like, thought about, oh, that's interesting, kind of like Samaria, but I didn't realize he was, like, taking on more of that maybe father role, right? Or Asta is becoming, like, Stalmaria. And then I was like, so, like, a father figure. And, you know, I can't, I you can't, like, go with the, the usual, like, daddy issues thing for liar because she has bigger mommy issues than she does have daddy mm-hmm. issues that's true <laughs> so it's not just that it's it's yeah i don't know i don't know it just feels like a weird event to get a relationship out of that's all it is like a little yeah the the renezme aspect the whole twilight you know like you've imprinted on a child uh it, it's definitely present in this book right he was her servant for life but he could just die like the last person, i know and that's what the I last think. person that that line Who was a servant for life. for life and that is that is what i think it has to, i mean that's his end game dude i don't know and, and i mean the big thing that we didn't say during the episode because i was trying not to obviously spoil it because it is such a big I was so excited when I realized Alice was Mrs. Lonsdale. I mean, that mm-hmm. was, I was like, oh my fucking God, Alice is Mrs. Lonsdale. Ah! I remember I just like turned to my husband and was like, ah, it's Alice. But then like Alice sat there and was like, well, you know, honey, Malcolm saved me from getting raped. I was getting raped by the evil villain and Malcolm saved me. And it just didn't feel right because... So maybe Mrs. Lonsdale loves to be a housekeeper, right? Uh, It's a prestigious job, as Eliana has mentioned the past couple episodes, to be a housekeeper for Jordan. I mean, that is a big college, right? You you have a big job. But you know who we don't get to hear from about what they want to do when they grow up at all? Alice. Yeah. Mm -mm. It seems like, to me, the strides philip pullman took i guess regarding feminism he was doing great with the, his dark materials yeah. uh, i mean not not perfect but yeah. he was doing great great female lead character coming of age and even 
in regards to Mrs. Coulter, yeah. you know, how she's had to deal with her life mm-hmm. and feminism yes. through her eyes and what she's done. And then for these two books, he just backslides big time. And it's, I think that's what is so disappointing about, uh, I, as much as I did enjoy reading these books, it, it just doesn't feel, it doesn't feel true to the first trilogy in that regard at all. Mm-hmm. It's it's like something, I don't know what happened there, but it, it feels off because of it. Like you have Lyra and as you said, Mrs. Coulter, and you also have Mary Malone. You have these three mm. incredible yes. women who drive the story forward in his dark materials. And of course it was part of like what he wanted to react to in terms of the lack of that, that he felt, or what he felt was the lack of that in the Narnia series and the way mm-hmm. that he felt that women characters were punished. But here it's not like, I will say at least, you know, women characters aren't punished for their sexuality, but or not in ways that aren't critiquing the, the, the cultural mores that cause that to happen, but it's still a disservice. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, and as I you said, it feels like a backslide. Yeah, I do think like Hannah Ralph, for example, started off so strong, us finally getting to examine some of the conflict she's going through with this secret agency and having, you know, this skill that she's developed to learn the alethiometer. And, like, that was really exciting, right? Like, that was something that I was really gripped by. And, of course, Jesper, who's the best demon. Jesper is the best! Jesper emoji, Jesper (laughs) emoji. But, like, that was so gripping in the front half of the story. And then we had one more, one or two more little Hannah Ralph moments, and that's it. It's over. Yeah. I'd... We didn't get any closure on Hannah's story. It turned into the Asriel, Lyra, Malcolm, Alice thing at the end, which is fine. But I do I do hope we get more of Hannah in the third book of Dust, because even in the Secret Commonwealth, there's not a lot. Yeah. And, and her moments in the Secret Commonwealth, one of them is deeply disappointing to me. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the closure for Hannah's story, right? She's not on the boats with Papa Dimitriou and Schlesinger and Nugent and them. Her closure, I guess... Her story is she listened to Malcolm's advice, brought all the book up, books upstairs, and she's chilling. She's like, I'm so glad I did that. All my books are safe. I'll drink some tea. She I, see, I, I couldn't remember that she did that. I couldn't remember ending. that if she did I that or she not. Did. Yeah. So. Right? That she got is. the happiest ending. It's mostly, yeah, happy ending. I would love to have, like, more of that, though. I would love to see more of Alice's internal, uh, what we get of her in the Secret Commonwealth. Shit doesn't look so great yeah. for her right now. But, you know, just going to keep keep treading water. That's what we do, you know? Didn't look so great for her in this book either. We could go for three out of three, I guess. Yeah, I can't believe... Yeah, and as you said, like, the way that her assault was brought up in the Secret Commonwealth is just... Malcolm saved me, and I... I've never heard anyone talk about their assault like that. I feel like a lot, like... The first half of the story, Alice, is not consistent with second half of the story, Alice, for this book. You know what? This is something that we're probably going to see in the Amber Spyglass. I know one of our friends and patrons, Juno, has chatted with me a little bit on it before. And that, like, Lyra and I don't, I only read the Amber Spyglass two times so far, twice, right? This will be my third reread when we do cover it. But our friend has mentioned Lyra gets a little out of character in some aspects in the Amber Spyglass. And I think some of it can be chalked up to meta of protecting Will and how she's feeling around him. But maybe this time I'll notice something else. 
It's really not fair, and I and we do it all the time, but whatever. They're the two series that we read. I think that um, Pullman's a more plot-driven, I think, uh, writer mm-hmm. than he is a character-driven writer, and I don't think that's bad. I think it leads to some really fantastical, awesome worlds that we've loved. There's obviously great character work there, especially in the original trilogy. And Marisa's mm-hmm. story is, I think, the... In my opinion, Marisa's story and, and Lars as well, they are the most character-driven of, I think, all of these books, but they are more plot-driven than anything else. I totally agree with that. And that is a reason why the other series we do, I mean, George R. R. Martin's one of my favorites for that purpose, because I love character-driven stuff. You know, I could get, I get lost in a character for hours, but at the same time, I do love the way Pullman has written some of those plots and beats like you're speaking of. And I love that character driven stuff. I love also mm-hmm. that he does let us have the space to think of these characters and add to it. Like Marisa. I mean, I, I can right. project all day on that shit, you know, but my God, overall at the end of the day, it is what it is. And I will read the next one. I mean, I'm not going to not read the next one, but I think that maybe the way these two books LaBelle Sauvage and The Secret Commonwealth, how they carry to each other. I don't know if I feel that they, until I get the third book, I don't think I can make like a, a cohesive overarching feeling about all three of them. I need the third one. And I don't know, maybe this is just me because, you know, I still need to finish. I don't know that they feel like a trilogy yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So much as... Mm-hmm. Well, I released this prequel book, and then, oh, I also released this sequel book. They don't feel like a trilogy yet. And maybe, and I think that's why we need the third book to wrap up whatever, Mm -hmm. if there is a thematic through line, right? Or something that carries through all of these. I agree. It's, it's a weird, you're right about it being not like feeling like a trilogy with the, with the gap and there being a whole other trilogy that fits in between. So it just doesn't feel all completely connected yet. I can see some of the Except lines, for this, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah, we have all the, the supernatural stuff that they're seeing. This is a weird place to bring this up, but and I, I think I heard you guys talking about it on your last podcast as they're traveling through different worlds. So y'all kind of compared it to going through like the windows, but I didn't really interpret it that way. I kind of interpreted it as these are things in their world that are hiding like so not necessarily a parallel universe and um and i don't know if that's correct assessment or not but that's just kind of my feeling Mm -hmm. like this was the magical things within this world like the witches and i don't know the cliff gas the other like kind of other weird creatures that they have but maybe these are just like hidden in this world Mm -hmm. versus like going through a window parallel universe but i don't know thoughts I think what you're saying is right. You know, I think that's there. I think we were just getting poetic. Fair. (laughs) Um, But, you know, like how the idea, right, they're talking about the weather isn't just outside, it's also Mm -hmm. inside, right? That idea that within each of us is a whole other world, going to that poetry. We all exist theoretically, probably on the same plane. I don't know, maybe Uh, we're all in this call together, but it's still all different worlds. So I think we were kind of thinking it thinking of it in that way but and and even like within our own world right and the next book secret commonwealth it goes to many different countries another culture can sometimes feel like 
is very much in many ways like another world, right? That's that is to some extent what it's like when they visit Chitagatse. Yes, some of the mechanics of the world are different, but ultimately what makes it feel so different is that building out of mm-hmm. culture. Mm. And and technology, yeah. technology is a part of it too. And those disparities exist within our own world. They exist within the same cities as we see when Lyra traverses Oxford and even Malcolm as well. The one thing I would hmm. add is that it does remind me a bit of later on when Asriel blows everything up, right? And the lines are very blurred between these worlds and it makes it so that, I mean, you have a city in the sky, right? Uh, that looks like mm-hmm. you could just reach out and touch it. And it, that paired with kind of Eliana's thoughts about the water forcing all of the magic up to the top of the earth uh, from being hidden, it, it mm-hmm. does make me see kind of like, are the worlds colliding? Kind of like with the Asriel stuff, or are these mm-hmm. worlds yeah. becoming available because of the shifting of our world? Maybe just worlds attaching on, etc. I don't know. Something crazy is going on. It's like the cicadas. Yeah. Are they like cicadas? Days, you can access this island. Hmm. Interesting. <sighs> Thanks for indulging me. Yeah, I don't know. I'd like to know, but I think we got to ask Phil on that one. Mm. You know? Or we got to we can ask the, the fairies yeah. ourselves. Well, I don't know about that. I don't know. I uh, I, I do look forward <laughs> to reading Secret Commonwealth with you again, Eliana, and we'll have to have Holly back at some point too puzzle out what the fuck it all means together and you know i I do want to see bud schlesinger again i think he's kind of wild he's kind of fun he makes me laugh i like him in the secret commonwealth i think he's just a fun guy with a good heart and i don't know my other big one that i want to see resolved is malcolm's eye thing right i'm telling you it's gonna be rose oil on the eye Mm. and he's gonna be able to use it for like alethiomiating or some shit i don't know Something's going to happen with that eye, I'm telling you. Amber, Amber spyglass in his eyeball. That's literally it. It's got to be because every time like he gets so much closer throughout this book to to like grasping it each time or like sees more clearly through it or is able to work through his spiraling light out of his eyeball and I'm like you got to use that power, boy. You got to manifest that. Mhm. I think I said this in another episode, but I like that the difference between this book and the next is like in his adulthood, people are like, oh, yes, Malcolm's just looking at shit in his eye and everyone just like waits for 20 minutes while (laughs) Malcolm does his thing. Whereas here he has to hide it. He's like, I don't know what's happening to me. But there they're just like, yeah. Oh, that's interesting, too, because it's almost kind of a parallel in a way for like Lyra with Pan, how some people know about it and some people don't. So the way she holds herself and the way she behaves in front of the people that know versus the way she behaves in front of people that don't. Mm, yeah. Same with Malcolm. Some people know about his eyes. Some people don't. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, it doesn't seem like it's like no. a huge secret. It's like a thing you don't tell people because they'll be like, Yo, <laughs> you're the fuck a is weirdo. But I guess that's true for Lyra and Pan too. Now that I think about it, people will be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? With much more. Um, yeah. I mean, also like. You can't just see it come out of his eye, at least, and he's not, like, plagued with that. But to be fair, he has the same affliction, I mean, yeah. of severing, so. Hmm. Oh, they're gonna yeah. bond on that, aren't they? Fuck me. Yeah. Oh, okay, ladies. <sighs> this has been such a great journey into the dust, out of La Belle Sauvage, into the dust, and I'm so glad that we had Holly on for it. 
Holly, thank you so much for joining us to go over the, these three chapters, the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure and an honor to be here with you guys. Y'all are the cream of the crop for me as far as podcasters go, so it's always awesome uh, to talk with you guys. Yeah, I'm going to flatter you. Stop that. Gosh. Well, okay. Well, at least least tell everyone where they can find you and your podcast online. You can find me on Twitter at Hunt Pants. Our His Dark Materials podcast where we cover the show is called The Dust Podcast. So at The Dust Podcast. And then if you care to hear anything about The Crown, me and Matt are covering The Crown right now. So that's at... Huh. Lilibet Pod on Twitter. Yeah, we're just kind of doing five episodes at a time. We're currently in season two with our good friend Bubba at Fit and Trim. So that's that's a fun little project I'm working on on the side right now in between waiting for his dark materials and waiting for Winds of Winter and all that good <laughs> stuff. The long wait. Oh, that's great. I'll have to tune in on that. Thanks. I'm excited. Five episodes at a time, too. So you'll be cruising. Yeah, we just we're all just Americans, like kind of covering it for as a show, and not necessarily like Matt is really good about researching the historical stuff, but as far as us talking about the characters, we're talking about them as characters in the show and not as the the human <laughs> counterparts that they represent. Um, but it's it's a good time. It's really it's pretty light and fun for the most part. I bash on Philip a lot, but it's fun when it's Matt Smith for right now. So playing Prince Philip. I know you like Matt Smith, Chloe. I do. But you know what? Me and you, Holly, we're just out here bashing on Phil's. Just bashing on Phil's. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yep. Phil's and thrills. Phil's and thrills. Oh, my gosh. <sighs> You're right. I'll have to bring that up on that podcast. So, yay. <laughs> Three weeks in a row of Phil bashing. It's gonna. It's a good time. Oh, my God. Well, thank you for joining us. Yeah, I mean, these were loaded chapters um, in many ways, not just in what they happened, but very emotionally. So... Much appreciated. Yeah. I tried watching. Someone tried to show me Crown, but I was blackout. Another time. Another time. (laughs) All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us as we were joined by Holly on this episode of Girls Gone Canon. And, you know, maybe you have thoughts. Maybe you have something that you would like to say to us. You can find us on Twitter and let us know your thoughts, reactions, or I don't know, anything else. Maybe you have a food you'd like for us to try. <laughs> um, you can find us at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, over on Twitter. Or perhaps you would also like to do the same thing, but in the longer format. You can find us via email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah, and make sure you're subscribed to us on a podcast platform near you. We will be starting the Amber Spyglass up in the next month or so, so keep an ear out for that and eye open for that. When we start it up, we'll probably be posting a similar schedule to what we posted for La Belle Sauvage end of the month, so tune in. We'll definitely post about it, uh, but you can subscribe to us over at Podbean, where we're hosted. Apple Music or iTunes. Is it Apple Music? Is it iTunes? No one knows. Spotify. Google, <laughs> Google Play. Pl- Google Plus. <laughs> Google Play. Google Plus. Uh, you can find us at Podbay, at iHeartRadio, at Audacity, <laughs> at Amazon Podcasts. Google us. We'll be there. I promise. Yes. And of course, if all of those uh, fail, you can always find us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, where we do have bonus episodes once a month, 
alternating between the two series that we cover most diligently, which is, uh, as you know, His Dark Materials and A Song of Ice and Fire. This month, we are going to be doing an A Song of Ice and Fire-themed episode and resuming our travel through the free cities. Yes, very excited to cover Pentos this month in A Song of Ice and Fire, and next month, in June, we will return with a His Dark Materials special episode for The Stranger Tier and Above. And, of course, we do have a private Discord. If you're in the Thunder tier or above, that's $10 and above at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. You'll get access to our private Discord, where every month we do a brunch slash happy hour hangout. So stay tuned for June's date to be announced. Yeah. It's going to be hot, because it's summer. thank you everyone (laughs) thanks so much for For listening (laughs) i have been one of your hosts eliana and i have been yet another one of your hosts chloe and thank you to another another one of our hosts this time around holly we'll see you next book the next book's going to be the amber spyglass everyone we're not jumping straight into the secret commonwealth please remember that we'll see you we'll see you at the amber spyglass bye